Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, along with Lorenzo Panariti. Panariti. You changed it? <laughs> I, I, I've, I've said it right 10 out of 10 times. Now I've got the microphone on me. Lorenzo Panariti. There you go. <laughs> got to sing it. Got to sing it. Young 27-year-old coach from Italy. He's living in Denmark. Great to have him here. I'd like to talk to you about many, many things, but uh, just what we do with our uh, guests... Lorenzo, is just start your journey in tennis, your beginning days in tennis. How did you get connected to tennis? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it was, I think it's, you know, like most players of my generation, you know, it's, uh, it's not as nice as it used to be. Like the, the stories in which, you know, the parents are hanging out in the club and you just start banging balls at the wall. It was more like, uh, you know, my dad was like a recreational player and, uh, you know, he liked like tennis and uh, he wanted me to start playing so I started like uh, I mean as far as I can remember it was just um, kind of like group clinics as I started at uh, five years of age um, I remember I was the youngest one in the, in the group and uh, yeah I mean no let's say kind of hitting giggle in a sense you know it's like with the the hand pads with the with the wooden uh, you know the wooden front and just trying to make contact with the ball and uh, I, I was playing a lot of sports. Like I played a lot of different. Uh, I was swimming quite a bit. I was riding horses. I was uh, skiing in the winter sometimes. Uh, so I, I tried a bunch of different sports. I tried football for two weeks. Never been two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been that good at football. But uh, yeah. And then uh, I mean I I stick to tennis. I I have to say like growing up as a as a kid I've never been like that uh, like a gifted athlete from the start. Like not really. I mean I still remember um, switching around like you know places. The first time uh, a physical trainer like you know I had a session with a physical trainer, and um, after the session was over like he, the the lady went to my dad and. Uh, I, I remember clearly, like she said, that your son moves like a fat penguin. <laughs> so I was like, I mean, and I was, I was chubby. Like I, I've never been like skinny or athletic. So it's, uh, it has been, it has been quite a bit of work and, uh, started playing more and more like through, through school I kept the only thing I, I kept doing until I was maybe 13, 14, I think it was uh, swimming at least once, once or twice a week. And then, uh, yeah. And then I started playing a lot of tennis, lots of tournaments, Lots of, uh, I would say, self-inflicted pressure in a sense. Like uh, when you try to compete, like uh, you know, with what you have. But uh, switching, uh, switching several places. As far as uh, you know, I, I remember moving from one club to another when I was maybe eleven, twelve, and then switching again two years afterwards, and then again to another place. So I didn't receive like let's say consistent coaching through like the developmental stages and that I think had an, had an impact in, uh, in a sense. Uh, I had one, let's say one coach that was following me when I was, let's say very young, let's say between seven and 10 maybe. And then, uh, and then we stopped with that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, um, uh, I think it was, it was, it was quite a ride, you know, and my, my parents, like my dad being, um, an amateur player, you know, not, not having gone through the, the pathway of uh, competitive tennis, 
you know that that makes it um, it makes it harder for a parent you know and then they ju- they just want the best for uh, they wanted the best for me and then and of course like they wanted me to be successful but if it's hard to navigate when uh, you know when, when you don't know what the right path is what so, what part of italy did you grow up in uh, i grew up in the north and uh, near to milan my monza actually where there is the formula One racing track um most of the time i was training like in a milano area so it was uh, maybe half an hour driving i mean still it's not not that far but it was uh, i trained for a period uh, near monza mm. but um the very northern part of italy uh, german is spoken correct the very very top very very north like uh, f- for example where yannick Sinner is from they do they do speak mostly mostly german but it's, it's not that north also the i mean i think is uh, it's it's a bit different culturally you know in in italy with the, the northern culture and the southern culture and uh, and my family is all from the from the southern part of italy which is uh, is a little bit like the united states in a sense you know it's like the, the south is a it's a little warmer it's more about like the slow cooking kitchen you know it's like there is more influence of the the mom and the grandma you know and it's uh, this kind of um, more family like atmosphere so that's in a sense like the culture that I grew up in even though I was I was in the north so it's uh, you know you do have some fond memories of like a larger family you know both my parents had uh, you know my my mom has like five brothers and sisters my dad seven so it was like it was a big family when I was growing up and you have siblings no no, no. that's uh, so I was uh, I was the spoiled kid and what about school tennis um in Italy, that's not the case. There's no high school tennis, correct? No, no. And it was, it, it has been a struggle, like go, going through high school. And I mean, I've always been quite good in uh, in school. Um, so, you know, I was also pushing myself and, you know, my parents were also like stressing on academics. You know, it was not just tennis, tennis, tennis. So also like choosing the high school, you have different options. Like you can kind of choose an easier high school that would allow you to get some more, some more time, some more, uh, you know, some more f- free time to, to play, to train, just to have free time and hang out. But, uh, but still, you know, I, d- I decided, no, actually that was my dad deciding, <laughs> but uh, he decided like to, to put me in, uh, in this kind of tougher high school, which, uh, looking back, I'm, I'm happy I did because it was really, really formative. Like, uh, but through the process, I hated it. Like it was, it was really, it was really tough. Like uh, also people that were not doing sports, they were struggling. So it was uh, not enough sleeping and uh, a lot of effort, like, uh, you know, on the court and doing physical training, trying to train every day, playing tournaments in the weekend, uh, during the week. I mean, and also you get to the point in which you have to hide it, like in the school that you're leaving for going to a tournament because the professors, if they find out, that you're prioritizing tennis over school, then instead of being, uh, how do you say, like, uh, instead of trying to help out, like, they actually go harder at you. And, and it's kind of, uh, that, that's kind of, uh, that doesn't help, you know, in a sense, if you're, uh, if you're really trying to excel in, in sports. So that's, that's a big difference. You came to the U.S. to play college tennis. You tell us about that. How was your English when you came over here? Oof, that was uh, not good enough. Uh, it's uh, it was still a big trauma. Like I mean, I could barely have a conversation in uh, in English, and uh, I remember landing in uh, from the plane first time. I you know to take the flight by by myself. 
I arrived in this uh, little uh, little airport in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, and there was this uh, this guy coming to pick me up, like somebody hired from the university, with this uh, very strong country accent, and he was talking to me at the phone. I, I, <laughs> it was so hard, and somehow we managed to find each other after like I, I was traveling for like 19 hours or something. We get in this uh, pickup truck, and he starts talking like a machine gun, you know, from start when we arrived and it didn't stop for one second so uh, yeah so there was there was quite an experience and then you know as soon as you get there and everybody starts talking to you it feels like like rockets you know like passing by so you're you're i really remember like feeling my brain like you know really cranking around the the language but after two weeks you you get used to it you know you had to take the toefl test right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah what did you study uh in, uh, in in college business administration and management. I actually ended up with a double major in um, business, like uh, management and accounting. And then, uh, well, I finished my master's in international business in, uh, in Denmark. Uh, and where, where did you do that? The, the master's? That was just in the, in the town where, I, where I'm living. Where that's, that's how you got to Denmark then? Mm-hmm. With college tennis, tell us about that experience. Uh, definitely not the, let's say the dream experience that, uh, that you see in the movies, like, uh, you know, like with the big colleges, big, uh, big parties, uh, you know, it's, uh, I ended up in two sm- smaller colleges. Uh, I played the, the, I mean, the first one, it was a Graceland university in, uh, in Iowa and, uh, the town is called Lamone. It's on the border between Iowa and Missouri. So really just cornfield all day, like nothing else. Uh, but I mean, it was nice. It was a small school, maybe 1500 students. Yeah. Something like that. And, uh, uh I mean, and I ended up transferring. I mean, it, it was a good experience overall. It was a bit of, a, uh, you know, it was a little turbulent, like with the, with the coaches, I had some, some funny experiences with the, with the coaching over there. I, I got recruited by this, uh, by this coach. Uh, that as soon as I arrived there, he moved, like because he had been offered like uh, another position in another university. Yeah. So, so you know, as soon as I arrived there, he, he lives like right th- that week. So I, I talked to him once, and then this new guy comes in, and he's never seen me play. And the the other guy just left the list, you know, with the players, and he's like, okay, that's how the lineup is gonna be. And like he put me on number two in the lineup, like almost for no reason, because there were guys that were actually playing futures, like in that team, they were like really good. Like there was a guy that had ATP points in doubles, you know, before. So I really wasn't deserving the number two spot in the lineup. And and then as soon as you get in there, then you have the teammates that kind of look at you and it's like, who are you? You know, it's like to get that. So it was, it was a little, um, a little turbulent to start. NAIA? NAIA. And uh, mostly foreign players? Yeah, all foreign players. There was only one American player, but he wasn't playing in the lineup. And uh, he, he was playing doubles. And where did you transfer? Why did you transfer? Uh, I transferred to Bluefield State in uh, West Virginia, in Bluefield. And I transferred actually because they, they cut the program in, uh, in Iowa. So it was, uh, I mean, it turned out to be, you know, a good uh, coincidence in a sense. But uh, after one year, the, you know, we started hearing rumors that uh, that they were going to 
you know, I think it was like the, the football team, the American football team wasn't doing so well. And, you know, they needed to find a new tennis coach because we have been going like for one year with this this guy that, I mean, he was a really nice guy, but he was, he was a priest in the church and he was like former player, you know, from back in the day, but he was just trying to help us out, you know. So they didn't want to invest the money like in to continue the program. They, yeah. And you're, you're just there one year. Yeah. And then they actually cut the program like the semester after. So it's, as soon as I moved, like, you know, they played one more semester and then they, you know, they cut the program. And what was the second college experience like? It's always good to have more experiences. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, I mean, it, again, it was, it was different. It was a smaller college that was actually a, a state college. So the, the previous one was like a private, private college. So it was also more, uh, it was more taxing. For uh, for my yeah, of course I, I was on a scholarship, but I was not on a on a full scholarship. So still, um, my family had to, had to cover. Like I was working on uh, on the first, um, you know, during my first year in college. I mean, to try to cover some of the costs. I mean, I I, I did I learned how to string. I was stringing rackets. I was cleaning toilets. I was uh, what was I doing? Swiping floors. Like all the stuff that they asked me to do. Like to put some hours in. Uh, th that's what I was doing the first year. Then th when I transferred, the good thing is like I got really good grades in the in the first during the first year. Also because it kind of felt like a bit like a joke, like coming from like a really tough high school in yeah. Italy. The freshman year in college, I, I didn't need to study. It was just just you know living uh, on the, whatever whatever already done. So I got like you know I, I think straight A's, and and then that helped. With the um, how do you call it transferring with the transferring with the academic scholarship, so I got partially tennis scholarship and academic scholarship, so that really helped like to lower the the costs in the other college. And that school also NAIA? No, there was a NCAA Division Two. Division Two. And uh, but both teams, I mean, they were actually competitive. I mean, with the second team, uh, you know, we beat like an first division first, like during a practice uh, practice match, we we beat a Division One college team. And also with the first team, I mean, they had been to nationals every season for the previous, like, uh, maybe 10 seasons. So it was like, it was really strong teams. I mean, and uh, I mean, I was barely playing in the lineup, like uh, in, in the second team as well. Like the coach, it was really good recruiter. Um, he never, you know, we never got to like each other in a sense. He never really liked me. Uh, so there was a You're so likable. Why is that? I don't know. That's uh, that's something that I, I want to ask him one day. But um, uh, yeah, so I kind of ended up like playing very bottom of the lineup. Sometimes he never got me like to not even trying to play doubles. He just put me in there when somebody was whatever sick or uh, couldn't make it. And I mean, I I think I did I did my job. I did okay. But um, so we had our like quarrels, you know, and uh, with the with the coach. And uh, I mean. Again, I, I did what I what I, you know what I could. Like I kept up the tennis, I kept practicing, and I, yeah, I I was doing okay in school. I mean, I ended up as a salutatorian actually, so it was, uh, you know. And again, I was not trying my best. Like in a sense, with with academics, it was just easier in a sense. And, wow, uh, salutatorian! I have a sister who I remember when she was salutatorian. I was much younger, eleven years younger. And uh, I was just asked, what does that mean? And one of the brothers said, I mean, she's number two. Yeah, exactly. She wasn't the valedictorian. She wasn't number one. You got so one B. Big, big, big family, you know, you just, you can't cut a break. <laughs> so you were out done in four years. 
I was actually done in three years and a half. I, 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 like practically, I was done in three years because like of one of the quarrels with the coach because he, he wasn't making me play in the team. And uh, I kind of threatened him. Like I, I took all the classes they could on one semester. And then I wanted to leave so that I knew that he was going to have five players. So he was going to need me for the last semester. And I took all the classes and they got done. And then, you know, I kind of forced him like to say, okay, what now? So, so I mean, that was, uh, that was good. So I mean, that's, that's why I got the double major because then I was, I had an extra semester like to actually stay there and, and say, well, I can actually take some extra classes and take it easy. So, so your high school preparation was rigorous. Um, how many hours did you take? Uh, with the, during college. You know, that when you said you, you, you doubled up and you took more yeah, classes. Yeah, yeah, uh, How many do you, I actually... 15 is the norm, five? 15 is the norm. I remember, like, that semester I took, like, 24 or something like that. Wow. But it was... Uh, and in the meantime, I mean, there was some weird things going on, you know. It's like I was helping out another uh, another uh, teammate that he was he was giving me rides, like, to the bus station because I needed to go back and forth and visit this ex-girlfriend of mine. So I kind of took a couple of classes for him as well. Oh, wow. So uh, <laughs> there was... Uh, but I mean, but again, it, it was not, it was not Harvard. It was not Stanford. You know, it was just still, you know, it's, it's still something. I mean, but it's, uh, I, I think I, I learned a lot more like during the, the masters. Well, you became fluent in English. Yeah. That's, that's, that's. How did you decide uh, when and where to go for your masters? Uh, I mean, it was actually, it was actually a little random. It was, um, this ex, ex-girlfriend of mine, like we, we were staying together when I was staying in, in the U.S., and, uh, and she's, American girl uh, from Mexico, actually. And but she was working in the States. And then uh, we decided like to move to Denmark because actually in Odense, where I'm based right now, there is this uh, this academy of uh, fine arts. Like she she's studying like uh, painting and sculpture. And um, and she looked it up and she found out, look, if, if I can get in over here, that's the only place in Europe in which they actually offer a full scholarship for non-European students. So. She did this uh, the application for her uh, her place, and uh, and I did my application for, you know, for my master's education, kind of in a sense because I was like, I mean, I'm I'm coming there, so I might as well do something, and uh, and then at the end she didn't got accepted in her education, but I did, and so she had to go back to Mexico after three months, and then then it didn't work out, but uh, but in a, in a good sense I've been stuck in Denmark, but th- but that's like the you know the longest story. So you'd have an MBA then? Is that yeah, right? yeah, pretty much, yeah. And uh, but I'm, no way I'm gonna take like a, no. It's it's not actually it's not an MBA. It's it's a master's degree. The MBA is a little different. Also in uh, also in Europe, it's um, you actually have to pay for that. It's uh, in your like for the masters, for example, like uh, you didn't have to pay. That's 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 the funny thing, you know. In in the states, instead of forgetting the bachelor, I mean, it was actually. You know, it was really expensive. Then you have the scholarships, like, to cut it out. But that's something that, that Denmark offers for the for the students as well. You know, the possibility of studying if you're European. If you get accepted, like, uh, you don't have to pay fees. You get your, uh, you can get the bachelor, you can get the master's. And, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. That's the only country in the world in which if you work, like, a part-time job, if you work 10 to 12 hours a week, they actually support you. They give you money. They give you, like... 500, 600 euros or, or dollars, which is almost the same, just extra. Just so you get paid, like, I mean, you actually, I actually managed to save some money, like, while studying for the master's. But Denmark, um, they're not on the euro, 
right? No, they are on the Danish Danish uh, crown. Crown, yeah. Mm-hmm. With music, you also studied music. Yeah, there was a, there was a parenthesis uh, after I got done with the, with my masters, and uh, so I got done with my masters, and I've, in in the meantime, like all the f- three years and a half, like four years that I've been in Denmark, I've also I've always been working part time in, uh, in in the club where I'm where I'm at right now, and uh, so yeah, I finished the master and. Uh, I, I, you know, the situation was kind of uh, stalling with the with the tennis. Like n- now, it changed a bit, but I was kind of uh, um, st- stuck in a sense. Like uh, I was working, let's say, I, I had, um, let's say, a boss, and I was like underneath, and this is like this many hours that you can do, and this is like uh, this much, you know, of what you want to do that you can do. So I was kind of stuck in this shell. And uh, I didn't really want to get out of tennis, but I also didn't want to get an office job because I don't like sitting down and I don't like a screen. I don't like, sit, you know, sitting in front of computers and that's what you do with my business education. And uh, in the mean, like I started actually in high school playing uh, saxophone, like as a, as a hobby, as a passion. And uh, my, my uncle actually just showed up for Christmas with a saxophone. He is an amateur saxophone player and uh, he brought some jazz CDs at home and he was like here is a saxophone here is a you know some cds he gave me like a disc with a like a lesson that you can try to take like and so i studied like one year as a self um, you know self-instructed um, saxophone player then i started taking some lessons and it was just it was something that really took my my mind off you know i was really stressed out with the school and tennis wasn't going the way i wanted it to go um, and then that was something that, you know, in a sense made me feel, you know, still, okay, I can do something. I can be okay that, you know, and we don't have the pressure of, you need to be this good by this then, you know, growing up, you kind of have the illusion of, uh, when you set the wrong goals and you said the okay, I'm 14 right now. And when I'm 18, I need to be, you know, whatever I need to be top 200 in the world or I need to be almost a professional player. I want to play the Olympics when I'm 21, you know, and then you realize when you're 16, that it's like, it's not going to happen because you're just, you just don't have the level and people keep passing you by, you know? And, uh, then when you realize that you're, you're stuck in the, in that sense, that there was something that kept me, you know, kept me breathing because at the end it's like, uh, I realize it right now that I, I'm still, I'm going, I went back like to play for fun. And it's uh, it really gets me breathing. It's like a breathing meditation. So the fact of having like this um, air instrument, you know, especially if if you want to be good, you need to practice like long tones, you know. So I could sit and for 15 minutes just practice like, um, you know, low notes and just keep blowing, you know, and just, you know, and, and that really helps you like you know breathe out and clear clear your mind, and it's. Um, you know, it really, I, I realize that I get the best ideas and the best, uh, you know, I get in the best mood after I play because just, it's probably just breathing, you know. And, uh, but I kept playing all through college. I was, um, I was going back and forth, you know, to visit this ex-girlfriend of mine. She was working in Washington, D.C. So I was going um, back and forth to visit her. I was, you know, I took some lessons over there with uh, some, uh, some good, uh, good teachers. I was, uh, kind of exploring the, the scene, like, uh, you know, going to some jam sessions and just um, playing with people. And I mean, I, ju- I just loved it. I just did it for, uh, 
for fun, but serious fun. You know, and you take your saxophone everywhere you go. You're here with three 13 year old players from Denmark, but you brought your saxophone with you. I mean, I realized that after uh, I spent like less than a week with with one of the students, like in uh, in Spain, and I didn't bring it. And I realized after five days that I didn't play. You know, first of all, you get back. And it's like, you're so rusty and that's so frustrating. You know, the fact that if you lose a, a little bit of strength in your, uh, you know, in your lips, in your muscles over there, it takes so long, like to build it up again. But also just the fact that I, I you know, I really get, uh, like my tolerance level, I realize gets so low. It's like, it's as if I don't sleep, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. I realized it after the, after this weekend, actually, when we, we spent like all day at the tournament for two days in a row and I didn't have time to practice. On Sunday evening, I was like borderline. Like, you know, I was really, I needed to breathe, like, you know, really heavy. And then on Monday, I practice and I'm good again. So it's uh, it's really like a, a good uh, meditation exercise. So it's, um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, we'll have to talk about Torben Ulrich, the great Dane. Um, he was really known for uh, so many different things, but meditating was one of them. With tennis teaching, tennis coaching, and we use an expression here in the States, a means to an end. So when you first started coaching part-time, mm-hmm. did you know that that was something that you might want to pursue as a livelihood, do it full-time? I mean, I wouldn't say so. In, in a sense, it's, it's something that I started doing, and then I realized that I was good at it. You know, In a sense, I was, I was good at uh, communicating with the kids, but it's, it was like a work in progress, in a sense. You know, and it's like if you go through... Stages when you're like 19, 20, 21, 22, you are in that phase in which you really don't know what you what you're looking for in a sense also for the for the long term. And uh, but you know then when you find something like for example I remember like uh, the way I got I got the job that that I have right now in uh, in, in Denmark. I, I worked like before that for three months like uh, in the JTCC in uh, College Park. Okay. And so th- that's where I got like. First of all, like before that, I worked a summer in a summer camp and I got like some instruction on how to coach. Then those three months were also like really, really good as far as I got some directions on how to do it, like how to how to coach, how to connect with players. And then when I arrived in Denmark, having that kind of small luggage of, of experience, you know, then they just put me on the court like for like a week of tryout and uh, and, you know, like a couple of parents from outside, they actually went to talk to the head coach and, and they said, I mean, these guys, you know, I, I wasn't speaking the language. I was just like, just trying to make connection, like with the hands and with the, with the eyes and with the voice. And, you know, and they actually said, this guy is, is pretty good, you know, at communicating with the kids. So, so they, you know, they, they, they hired me like for a, for a period and, uh, and then it just, just kept going. But, uh, but I mean, it, it's just that the more I do it, the more I realize, like, and that's something also I want, I want to ask you, I want to talk about, like, you know, you realize that you can have an impact, you know, and it's like sometimes working with the, with the education that they got in, in college is like, of course you can have an impact, but it's, you know, if you work for, as a consultant for a company that's making a bazillion dollars and it's like, you know, it's, it's not the same as changing, you know, changing a, a kid's life in a sense, you know, because when that's what we're doing in a sense, you know, and that's, that's larger than, you know, making sure that the company is, is making that extra billion, you know, it's a, it's, it's a different kind of satisfaction. And um, so that kind of, you know, turned me around and 
I had in the back of my mind, like uh, when we talk about the, the music, you know, that's something that I was really enjoying doing. And, uh, you know, for a second I thought, you know, I could do it as a career because it was, it was really fun. And then I started like, um, uh, I applied for the conservatory and it's, it's actually really like, it's, it's a good program. It's a, it's a good school there in, uh, in Odense. And, uh, like the, the level is really top, like top, top national level, like a lot of good teachers, a lot of good, good musicians over there. And, uh, as, as I got in there with, uh, you know, I was like bubbling passion, you know, I was really loving it. And, uh, and I, I started feeling that the, the people over there, like the teachers, but especially the students, you know, they didn't have that uh, kind of like that, that fire, you know, they, they were playing and it was becoming their, their job, you know, it was, it was different. So it was not more something that was making them happy, but it was something that they had to do because they had to make a living somehow. And uh, I, w I felt like that, that kind of vibe coming, coming at me after, you know, one year in which you know, if I pull out my saxophone and they feel like, you know, oh, now I need to do, I need to practice this, you know, and it's like, I don't, I don't want to feel that way. Like, because before it was the thing that I was looking forward to. So if, if then that gets taken away from me, then, you know, you, you take away my, like, kind of my anchor, like something to, to keep me sane. Are, are you still studying at the conservatory? No, no, not anymore. No. I, I, I resigned. Uh, actually, officially from this January, and that's when I started like working. Uh, Tell us about JTCC. That's a famous place here in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, again. It was very random. I mean, uh, I was uh, because I had this former girlfriend like uh, that was working in uh, Washington D.C. and I just looked up places. I had no clue about who was coaching there. Like that they had uh, players. I just sent an email, and I said, "Look, I'm playing college over here." I I, you know, I coached last summer in this uh, camp in New Hampshire. Maybe, maybe you even know the coach of the camp in New Hampshire, uh, Coach Porter, Dave Porter. Do you know? Yeah, him? I know the name, Dave Porter. Yeah, he's he, older, right? From, yeah, from uh, Hawaii. I, I hope he's still okay. I heard he was having trouble. Oh yeah, okay, Dave Porter for sure. He, no, he's at BYU. BYU, exactly. I, uh, okay, um, I have to just stop and think. Um, I don't really know him personally, although I met him many times. I listened to him speak. Actually, one of our students is playing for him right now. Uh, but he was in New Hampshire. Yeah. Where, yeah, where was that New Hampshire? In uh, uh, Camp Camp Walt Whitman. Okay, the, I've, heard, I've heard of that too. And it was... Uh, yeah, I went to prep school in New Hampshire. It's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. And that, that was quite an experience. It was... Uh, uh, I mean, again, that was the first time in which I got on the court and, you know, working for somebody. And he actually, like, he printed out, like, you know, lesson plans and trained us for like a week before the camp started. Oh, that's good. That doesn't happen very often. That's, you know, and I, f I felt very privileged, like with that and also with the training that we got in JTCC before the camp started, because usually you just get thrown in the court, you know, and then that's, that's kind of a trauma that, that I see happening every, you know, on a daily basis, almost like in the clubs in Denmark, you know. And that was a boarding camp. There was a boarding camp. It was, uh, yeah. Years ago, there was an article in Tennis Magazine. If you can survive a boarding camp... <laughs> You can survive a tennis career. It was uh, it was insane. Like I remember getting in there and we were just uh, sleeping in these uh, wooden bunks without windows. And in the forest in New Hampshire, even in the summer, it gets cold. Like we had like maybe six blankets. And if if a food went out of the blanket, <laughs> you were waking up in the morning with a frozen food. It was so cold. And we had several like two, at least two encounters with a bear, like like not too far away. Like it was an, an elk. An elk crossed the camp and like they had to shoot it down. I mean, it was like, but it was, um, it was, it was a funny experience. 
So JTCC, mm-hmm. that, that was just another full summer? Yeah, yeah, there was a full summer. I actually worked with the, with the little kids, and that was, uh, that was nice. There were some of the, actually, uh, Taylor, Taylor Delaney. Now she is the director of the, um, I think she's actually the daughter of one of the older, sorry, one of the older directors. But at the time, she was, she was younger, and uh, she was kind of uh, guiding us. Like, she was taking care of the, the tiny kids, and uh, and she helped. She introduced us, like to you know, this is how you coach, and a, a few things. Like I still have to not remind myself because it, it became a habit. But when I see other coaches doing it, like it, she still comes to my mind. Like like the fact of okay, if you're coaching on, on a larger group, it just comes natural. Like to the teenage coach right now to sit on the post with the hands over there and just you know stare at the ball and say nothing. You know, but uh, and she was like, no, keep walking. Keep giving feedback, you know, you can give di- different types of feed- feedback, but, you know, still show energy, you know, show that you are there. And that's, um, you know, and again, not technical instruction. There was, uh, oh my gosh, I, I can't remember the name right now. This, uh, um, I think I think she was from, from China, actually. And uh, her her son is playing college tennis. But anyway, she, she was a, she was a good teacher with the, with the little kids and, uh, and I was helping out. I was just being a... Uh, um, you know, being uh, a helper, like I, so, I was running, let's say, running a court, but I was being told what to, what to do. Maybe sometimes, you know, they were telling me, you know, do this type of drill, do this, but is you certainly must have observed the other parts of the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was. I mean, I remember some of the players. I, I saw, uh, I met uh, Francis Tiafo once. It was just their uh, visiting. Um, but I mean, the high performance program. You know, that's that's the thing. That uh, I remember, it was getting the, let's say the, the little kids coaches, like they were getting a little frustrated with the uh, high performance coaches because it's like we were working so hard, like you know, okay, we need to have, we need to have a plan, we need to you know uh, be consistent also with what we tell to the with the kids, you know, and it's like have a feel that the camp is, is structured, and then you would see this. Uh, former players that were really good at hitting the ball, you know, and they were working as coaches for the high-performance players, and they were just showing up, and it's like, all right, let's hit some crosses, and uh, let's hit some serves, okay, sets, you know, and they were getting paid twice as much as us, you know, without having to raise a finger to work, you know, and just because they had, the, in a sense, the experience of playing, and that's always the, the same story. Then, of course, there is some uh, great coaches, like, I mean, Veza, Veza Ponka, I mean, I saw him giving some lessons, and I was just observing. And, yeah, uh, Finnish mm-hmm. background, or from Finland. I understand they do a very good job of character development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, a couple of uh, coaches from uh, from Africa, actually, which I don't remember the name, but they were uh, taking care of the let's say the junior champ program, like the Green Ball, and they were. Um, I mean, they were coaching. They were they were strong, you know. And I remember that if, if the kids, even if they were nine or ten, you know, and th- there is a lot of spoiled kids like in junior tennis in, in, in the, everywhere, you know, in the States, in Denmark, in Italy. But if somebody was not behaving like they were, you know, they were not holding back. Like like what happens here, you know, they, they were coaching, like really. So that was that was good to see. And uh, but um, yeah, but I must say I, I didn't learn again the nuts and bolts. Like th- that's uh, that's what I was missing, you know. That, that's something that, you know, I kind of got a hang on how to communicate with the kid, how to connect with the kid, how to, you know, a little bit on group dynamics, you know, how to organize the lesson, how to make the rotations, how to keep it active, keep it fun, keep it. But, you know, if you don't know 
how a back and volley looks, you don't know how a back and volley looks. You know, there is no way around. Yeah, so, that's well put. That's a term we use, nuts and bolts. Well, you're only 27. Uh, how long ago did you connect with our content? That was, How'd uh, that come about? It was about uh, about two years ago, I think, uh, when uh, or maybe more. Well, when when lockdown started, actually, and I was uh, I had some some extra free time, and I started listening to, to podcasts here and there, and uh, I bumped into into one of your your and Andy Andy Fitzell uh, podcasts, and uh, as I told you, like you know. When you're used to like this, uh, this fancy like tennis podcast in which everybody's super pumped and speaking super fast, you know, then you bumped into your podcast and then you listen to you speaking very slowly and speaking, you know, about old people in a sense, because I didn't know them and I'm, I'm, I'm still ignorant, you know, but back, back then I was even more ignorant, you know, I was just hearing names of people that, okay, this must be like back in the thirties, you know, I don't even know. So, so, uh, but, but then again, it was lockdown. So. The only thing I could do it was like listen to stuff, and then we, we they just built a wall in a, in our club where I, where I work. So I was like I was listening to some some tips and and stuff like when you know you pull out a, a podcast about the volleys, about the different grips, and then I go out at the wall and I try out like changing the grip. Of course, I've always been volleyed like with the strong continental grip, you know, backhand side, forehand side, and then I try it out and it's like okay, this makes sense. You know, I I can almost like I can hit a decent forehand volley. And then I started listening about about the serve, and then you know I was trying to work um, myself, like trying to fix my serve. And then I tried some of the stuff that you know that you guys put out there, and I was like, okay, this is working as well. So I I, I, I said to myself, okay, I might as well go and check the online courses, you know. And that's what I did, and it, it was good that you know then also when you know normal life resumed in a sense, and uh, I went back to my education, I still I, I was already hooked in a sense. But it was it was really good to have uh, to have the free time to really dig in, you know, and then watch. Like I mean, I I wouldn't say I binge watched like the videos. Not not really. I mean, it took me. I would say a good a good four months, like to go through like tennis intelligence applied. I I didn't do it in one weekend, but you know, every day I was listening like to two three videos, and then I was having you know the lessons, and then I was trying out on myself on the students. And then again, I was just getting confirmation, you know, that that all the stuff that was being said, it was working. And and then you know that's why I, ke I kept digging. And then you know it's just, uh, you know, but it's uh, it's just every time that I re-listen to a podcast or that I re-watch a video, then I find some new like uh, nuances in a sense. You know, something that you miss the first time that you can go back and and figure out. Okay, this actually makes it even better. So it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really brilliant. And, uh, and after that, I mean, I'm just, uh, again, I, I have so much like to, to fix it. You've seen my technical video and, uh, you know, there is only so much that you can do when, you know, you don't. And again, I, I could, and I should have been able to do it like myself, like just recording myself in the wall. I didn't do it enough. Um, uh, but, uh, but again, I still have a lot of work to do, but you should, should see myself like before starting to work on, uh, on this material. I mean, it was awful. It was, uh, you have in mind like Francis Tiafo sir, like you know the way it goes down and up, and it's like it was uh, like when I when I go back and watch the videos, I'm like, okay, no, it's it's not good enough still, but but it's it's a lot better. It looks a lot more like a serve, and uh, you know, and it's I, I think it's good like that. I find I found out about this now that I'm still like I'm still playing, I'm still competing, and you know, in a sense, it's. Um, 
I, I feel like I'm uh, I'm obliged like to to play like I'm trying to teach the kids, you know, because we do have like uh, leagues and like the team matches at the the club or, or tournaments, you know, and and then there is the kids watching. So if if I pro if I preach of you know oh well you should go to the net oh well this is how you should hit like uh, whatever toss pin back and or the serve, and then I do it in a completely different way, I mean. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. You know, you still have to lead by example, you know, so it's... Uh... Well, your background in academia, obviously you're a student. Tennis intelligence applied is a long course, 25 hours. And that's where we put together the, the course mm-hmm. Great Base because it's hour and a half, two hours max. But we found that a lot of people would not complete the course. When we first put tennis intelligence applied out, our webmaster told us that country by country, America was number one for most people who signed up, but Serbia was number one okay. for people who had completed the course. That's brilliant. The, um, yeah, the great base is uh, the quick version. Yeah. No, but it's, um, it's, it's really like, uh, it's really game changing, you know, when, when you see that in action, you know, because it's like when you see that on the podcast, I, I, I had a hard time like figuring out, you know, the visual. But then when you see that, you know, and it's like, and again, it, it, it helps like ju- just seeing like also when uh, on the short videos, you know, and uh, now I can't find them anymore. I think they've been uh, put down of, uh, of YouTube, like uh, if, if Andy Fitzel was doing some, uh, you know, some quick tips, you know, videos about, okay, this is how you hold the grip or this is how, you know, even the, the grip system. Grip you now. mean the Instagram posts? Uh, no, actually, the, there was some some videos on on YouTube, or maybe it's just my account. I don't. It doesn't matter. But uh, but that was also very helpful. You know, just, just having the visual in front of you and um, make it clear, and, um, and and catchy too. You know, that that's the thing with the tennis intelligence applied compared to the other courses. Like okay, that the video video quality and the audio quality is not as brilliant as in the others. So it's like you need to you know be really hooked on the, on, on the, on the material, like to, you know, to stick to it. And that's the problem I think of some of uh, like, let's say my generation or the generation like younger than me, because as soon as the video quality is not top notch and you don't have like banners coming up at you, like uh, fancy arrows, you know, and the boom sounds and this kind of stuff, then it, it becomes boring, you know, but, uh, but when you value the content in a sense, it's. Yeah. We've been told by many people that, uh, we're rich in content, but we're just not too slick on how we how we get it out there. But um, the goal, what we're waiting on, um, is retain a lawyer and have the great base become a nonprofit. And we hope to, uh, you know, then people will be able to donate money. And we want to do a much better job uh, reaching more people. Mm-hmm. It's a the, the lawyer said it's a body of work. I mean, it's really. We've always said that Vic Braden's a Christmas tree and everyone else is an ornament, some pretty strong ornaments. But just for the core teaching, if you just took um, Braden, Vandermeer, and Van Horn. Um, and, you know, there's others. I mean, I think of Jim Lair with the mental toughness or Bill Jacobson's with stats. People need to know the history behind it. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll use my name in third person. Um, you know, Steve Smith stuff. And then Andy helped out. I've known Andy for 20-some years, but for well over two years, maybe it was a three-year period, because of the pandemic, um, you know, he did a great job. And actually, um, it was very tiresome for 
for Andy because he would just be asked the same question over and over and over again. The same, the same shots. You know, this is. 1960 tennis, old school tennis. This is not how the pros play today. And um, but all you have to do is, um, you know, as Andy would say, just watch people, watch your students hit balls. And you know the fundamentals are are lacking in all over the world. It's amazing. Yeah, that is uh, that is true. With your uh, coworkers, um, you know, how does that work out? I mean, you're. You're using the great base curriculum, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean that, that's that's one of the questions I actually wanted to to ask you. You know, because I mean it, it's it's good because I do have, for example, you know, I, I've, I'm I'm being helped out by uh, you know Hilvis that he's actually helping us out as as a as an assistant coach, and uh, he doesn't have a strong background in tennis. He's always been like playing tennis, but he was a Former professional hockey player from Czechoslovakia, from Czech, from Czech Republic. Yeah. So it's like he's aware that you know he knows it, that he doesn't know. So he's open. Like his mind is is open. So if if you you know if you give him a suggestion, if you tell him, look, this is how we should teach the back and volley. This is, you know he takes it in and then he brings it out to the kids because he accepts that okay I don't know how to hit the back and volley so I'm gonna listen to you and I'm gonna you know I'm going to teach it the way that. You know, because I, of course, explain, it's not, it's not my thing. I always say, it's like, okay, I've just been studying this and it, it works, you know? And, um, yeah, I, 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 do, I do give credit. And it's like, I mean, I always suggest, like, to the coaches and to the kids, like, to, to read Vic Braden's book and, uh, you know, listen to, to your material. And But there is so much online. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy how people don't go for it because it's it's out there. But, uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, it could be better in a sense and and you know we are a bit challenged like in a sense that we have teenagers in the coaching team like uh, a classic you know that in a normal situation they would be just you know you're in charge of the five-year-olds six-year-old ten-year-olds you know because you're 16 and you're a little bigger but you know we try not to do it that way and uh, and then otherwise there is the other players that also play some tennis themselves and they also coach so you know if they believe that they need to turn the doorknob on the forearm, you know, and they, you tell them, look, you don't move the wrist, you know, when, when you hit the forearm, like, especially if you are trying to teach a seven-year-old, you know, the wrist is stiff, basically, you know, it's like you try to cut out the wrist and swing from the shoulder, you know, and as you say, like, uh, release from, from the elbow. But, you know, they have a really hard time letting that in because that's how they feel that they hit the forearm and then they always come up with, but have you seen Francisco Serundolo's foreign, you know, that or Berrettini's foreign, you know, have you seen where they finish? And it's like, and it's always the same situation as, you know, Andy Fitzell finds himself because it's like, you know, then it's, uh, you explain, but if somebody doesn't want to listen, they don't want to listen. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not as easy, but, but, you know, I, I want to also to hear like some, uh, you know, so some some tips from your experience as you know in trying to create a consistent team. You know, and that's that's what I like. Like when you say that, okay, you need consistency in your program because I realize that if I'm coaching a kid today and I'm telling the kid one thing, and then the next day another coach is with the kid, and you know they're being told a different uh, a different tip on how to hit the back and how to hit the front and how to hit the serve, it's not going to work. Because then they have different voices, and and you know, and then they're just gonna do it their way, and usually their way is not it's not the right way. Well, you need continuity, yeah, consistency, 
I think one thing to develop a culture, and I, I've traveled many places and worked as a consultant, you know, traveling clinician, and you film everybody. Every coach has to be filmed. Every coach has to have a, make, have a video made. You don't have to be currently playing. You don't even have to run. We're just going to toss some balls to you, hit a forehand, hit a backhand, and then we need to film that. Um, the skill testing, you know, there's so many things to skill test, but just, you know, the basic 25 shots, multiply, you know, kid makes 10 out of 25, you know, they're 40%. That's their, you know, 40 percentile. And it's like in academia, their reading level would be low. But you start a written file, a video file. You, you it's, it's labor intensive to start the right way. And only beginners don't have to have the video pay, the videotape made. We make it a prerequisite. And, you know, it's nice when you send it. Now it's a private YouTube clip. It used to be a, a CD. It was a, a, a VHS tape. I mean, I've been doing this since the 80s. And we document everything. So then the parent has to sit and watch it with the child. And then, you know, there's we love to do it with the camera on a tripod. You know, a kid comes back and say, well, you need to watch it three times, send us notes with the notes in logical sequential order. But then you point the camera at the kid. You want feedback. You point the kid, point the camera, you know, tell me, you know, what you're doing inefficiently. You know, the words, not that it was wrong, you're doing inefficiently. And then the, you know, the prevention of injury, all the rationale has to be shared. But you look as well, take the racket low and then bring it back up high, take it low a second time. Well, are you going to be committed to making the change? I think another thing too is that misery enjoys company. If you look to your left and you look to your right and there's, you know, say the, the player coming in, you know, there's somebody who can beat them <coughs> maybe during their first day on site, they were beaten some badly by someone and you, then they're, um, you know, then they're actually next to you doing working on technique you know, so it becomes a community. Um, the other thing too is with, you know, doing it from the very beginning. You know, for us, I mean, now the way it's set up is that we have a pretty captive audience. I mean, you got off the airplane from Denmark. You were convinced to come here. I would say that's the way it is with everyone. You know, we do know in club coaching, like, well, maybe you should just help the player with a one shot first and then win them over gain their trust. But we're saying film. Film before you um, film before you do any teaching. Number one is people will come back and say you ruined my game. Yeah. And a Vic Braden line is what game? We Vic wouldn't say that in front of people. Um, he loved the fact that I would. That you know, your game, what game? You have no game. You're lucky to find the bathroom. You know, you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Um, so, you know, no, there's so much interference. There's so much interference. I would say for every person who supports us right now, there's probably two who don't because they they don't have the background from a tennis education standpoint. You know, tennis coaches, I get myself in trouble, but they're not well-read. You know, they're, it's just very, very common I think around the world. Um, I've been in so many different countries, but a lot of time in Denmark. Never was fortunate enough to be in Italy, but worked with a lot of Italians with... Yeah, it's it just goes around and round where um, 
just because you're the player doesn't mean you should get the job. I think most federations too, they hire former players. And, you know, that's one of the things that doesn't take place so much in American TV is that education. You know, you, you need to have people that have really studied the game. Not, you know, it's great to listen to former players, but um, it's, you know, it's like I always say, you're a saxophone player. So if you want to play the saxophone, hire an instructor. If you want to be inspired to play the saxophone, go to a concert. So again, it's inspiring to work with former players but it's not generally informative. So I think to create the team, you have to make things just mandatory. And the other thing is I make people make the videos. Oh, you know, what's I think intimidating, you know, we could have a a 15 year old come and a 12 year old is going through the checkpoints with him. You know, so it's, you know, we teach everyone to teach. That's part of it. Teaching is information transfer. So when you point a camera, I've had many students that, Oh, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I say, okay, let's get let's get a video in front, and now you're actually going to critique the strokes, and they're stuck. You know, the more they say, the less they know. And I think also, you know, there's so many people that are pretentious. They're pretending that they've actually worked with a beginner and had them advance to the point where oh, they're going to national tournaments now. Um. It's sad that what happens is that so many times at a club, you're saying that, you know, the younger coaches with the younger players, say, um, I've worked many places where the, you know, the the kids that are in 10 and under groups, people are doing a really good job teaching them. And then they advance out of that, you know, into the high performance and there's no connection. And I think a lot of people are confused that they think they outgrow basics. But it's just like shooting a foul, foul shot from the basket, from the in basketball from the foul line. You know, it's still the same fundamentals and in every sport. Unfortunately, we don't get that in tennis. But in every sport, you need to keep working the basics. No, but uh, I mean, one thing. One thing I was thinking about, you know, in, in the in a sense, the issue is that in a, in the club environment, for example, in the club situation in which I'm, I'm living right now. It's like most of the most of the coaches, I actually including me. I mean, it's like it's not a. It is a full time job, meaning that you work full time. But I mean, like you don't get you don't get quite paid as a full time job, you know. So it's like everybody else is like either studying, or as another job, or it's like you know. So there is very few full time coaches, and it gets even worse as soon as you get out of like a larger city, like you know, in Odense where I'm at right now we're probably one of the few clubs in which coaches get paid. You know, it gets, you know, as soon as you get out in the countryside, then there is tennis clubs, there is people playing, but the kids are taking lessons with volunteer coaches that are usually like the parents of the players that want to play. So it's like, you know, sometimes it's it's hard to hold people accountable when it's like, well, I'm here three hours a week. What do you want from me? You know, you know it's like, because they're actually doing like without anything else and then they're on the court like two, three hours a week. So that's that's one challenge for sure. And, and then one thing that it came to my mind because it's like uh, you realize that both the player and like the teenager, like neither of them, maybe they know how to hit the ball more or less, but they for sure, they don't know how to teach. Like when you say that the teaching is information transfer and I realize, you know, the more I work, the 
the better I, I, you know, I feel that I get, a, you know, a transfer information. But, you know, if these people, even if you give them the right information, then they are still going to have a hard time, like, transferring them because they are not born teachers. Like, if you get a 16-year-old that has never taught before, then it gets really challenging. Like, you know, maybe the kid is a little shy, maybe the kid doesn't have communication skill, or maybe you get a former player that has never, you know, coached like a beginner, and then it's, it's tough. So I thought about, have you ever thought or tried about like um, getting some school teachers? Like, because I, I've had some really good experiences with the, like people that have played very little tennis, but they're really good teachers. And, you know, as Hilvis that like, uh, as, you know, they have a clear mind, meaning that they are aware that they don't know how to do things, but they, they are really good at transferring the information. So have you ever tried, like, getting somebody that knows very little about tennis and then teaching them, like, let's say... Oh, for sure. I mean, resources. First of all, you're, in my opinion, you're much better off. I'm a member of the BTR, USBTA. I was a tester for both, I think, you know, 40-plus years in both organizations. I recommend everyone, you know, in this country, okay, be proactive, become a member of the two organizations. But I would much rather train a coach, train a teacher, teacher, coach, whatever the title may be, than hire one. Okay. Yeah, actually, uh, it was Andy Fitzell. Um, he happened to call me and uh, I was talking to Brandon Flanagan, who runs the FM Tennis Performance Center. And I had just got done um, telling... Uh, Brandon, I said, it's dangerous to hire anybody over the age of 25. So Andy had no idea what I said. And I said, hey, Andy, Brandon just asked me this question. And Andy just said, I would never hire anybody over the age of 25. Because they have experience. You know, it's the macho male ego, too. And, you know, I, again, you don't want to typecast or put anybody in, a, in, in one category. But resources. It, the Vic Braden Tennis College, used to have this conversation all the time with Vic. Time Magazine called his facility the best tennis teaching facility in creation. I mean, you just would turn a switch and the, the ball machine would be going, you turn a switch and the people are being filmed. They, weren't even, they didn't even know they were being filmed. They go from the film core to the simulated ball machine, geometrically set, ball comes out every four seconds. And it's just like, wow, you know, with... Everything from a, the baskets in the corner, where you, you know, players didn't have to pick balls up. You would just sweep them into the corner. And then he had the basket set where the pro didn't have to bend. You know, the ball was, the basket was right up chest level. And, you know, of course, the braiding feed, the rapid fire feed. But I've taught places where, especially when you travel, you have no idea where you're going to teach. It's an adventure, right? If they walk around the corner, okay. With, but it, to be challenged that way. So one of my uh, fond memories is teaching PE classes. You know, I'd have, I've had students watching me teach a PE class. And I remember the athletic director was a little put out with me at first because I said, well, help your PE teachers teach the PE classes. Why do they need your help? I said, well, we have this unique program. And then actually what happened with the PE teachers, all but one, all but one is really interesting of course, they had they were coaches. They had their football coach, baseball coach. They would leave. You know, then they got to the point where they didn't even come to take attendance. It's just one that hey, this is great. I want to learn how to teach tennis. 
but to be out there with 24 beginners by yourself. No, you, you want to be able to teach anybody and everybody, and especially with really young children. You know, like early childhood development classes, you know, pe- you know, it's more and more prevalent today, separation anxiety, you know, little kids in a, you know, ECD, early childhood development class, and, you know, they want to be with mom, want to be with dad. And they, you know, you have parent, parents teaching. It's like, okay, let's get a grip sticker. Let's make sure they have the grip. Because a little five-year-old is going to hang on the ball, hang on the racket a different way every time. No substitute for a good beginning. With, um, no, it's, um, you know, it's really, how's it go? Um, tragedy. Comedy is tragedy with time. What will what, happen is, People who have a playing background and haven't prepared to be a tennis teacher, they're going to hide. They're going to disappear. They're not going to coach little kids. And, um, you know, that's the lifeline of tennis is when, you know, people start to start in tennis, they need to stay in tennis. So they really need to be taught. And then, and, and, you know, pickleball here in the States, uh, tennis is a difficult sport, but education, education, education. So, um, yeah, no, I, um, it is a bonus. Welby Van Horn was arguably the best player-teacher combination. He just said today that, you know, playing is just a bonus. You know, if you can play, great. But, you know, it doesn't really, it's way, way overrated. Way, way overrated. But that, you know, Welby was, uh, he was just a genius, you know, as far as, okay, this is what you do with the beginner. And I mean, th- you being here, uh, what, 10, 12 days now? Yeah. Um, you know, Scott Reed was here, a volunteer coach, used to spend a lot of time with us. He was here, here with Delaney, five year old. I had another dad just shadowing us, Alex, with his son, James. He's 10 years old. It's a family that gets a tennis player down the road. And you have to, t- you have to get people to understand home training, put up mirrors. You know, these are the routines you have to do. And it's, it's, so, it's so much trial and error. So much trial and error instead of specific instruction. Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, I, I, do, I, do, I managed to get, like, uh, one, um, one question out of each, each of our kids. So, like, I think, it, I think it could feel well because, for example, Guy, like, uh, he asked about, you know, he was surprised, like, to see tiny, tiny kids, you know, like, uh, like Delaney, like, uh, you know, um, what's the name? Lincoln, for example, Lincoln, you know, yeah. little Lincoln, or also me. I mean, she's only eight, but it's like, you know, to keep them motivated, you know, because it's like, it's usually the kids at those ages just want to run around and have fun, you know, it's like to actually, you know, keep them on track, like to, and to make them stick like to good form, you know, good technique from, from the start. Uh, I, I heard you saying something about, you know, it's, it's about how you talk to the kid. And that's, that's something that impressed me very much, you know, coming here. That's, you know, like, uh, like you say, like, uh, like big Braden used to say, is like, you know, no little strokes for a little folks, you know, you just isn't the, you know, the most efficient way. And that's, that's correct. But also, you know, the way you look at them in the eye and it's like, you know, you talk to them as if they're a grown up athlete, you know, and it's like, it's, it's not, it's not hit and giggle. So I'm sure that's one thing, but if you have other, um, you know, tips on how to keep the, the little kids engaged with the... Well, I think one thing with little kids is just that, find a way to have them be with the big kids. Yeah. It's too stratified where, okay, 
you know, at a typical tennis club around the world, you know, the the kids in the 18 and under, they don't know the little kids. It needs to be the train. It needs to be the caboose. The caboose is early child development. And, you know, the 18s need to pull the 16s. 16s need to pull the 14s. They all need to start at the same time. And if you do technical teaching and, you know, say someone has to keep the racket up higher uh, on the forehand or backhand, or typically a lot of players are taught to take the racket straight back and say, okay, you know, you're 17, but we have this seven-year-old who's going to toss balls to you. You, t- you toss them. And then also, too, is that we're not, you know, you toss them eight, eight to be great, and switch it around. What's the industry norm is to get a basket of balls and put someone next to the basket of balls who's playing a little bit of tennis. And it's a factory. And people just get out happy, busy, good, and they just do drills across the baseline. Vic Braden, you know, easygoing guy, but one thing that would drive him nuts is to watch people just do forehands across the baseline. And it's just just the norm. Um, and, you know, if you actually judge that, get a stopwatch on it, it's amazing how they, you know, every day they're starting with a forehand, and if it's an only a one-hour lesson, one-hour clinic, you know, what other shots do they even get to? Um, so, you know, yeah, how you talk to a kid, expectations, feedback. I mean, I bore our listeners with uh, a Bradenism. Don't, under, don't underestimate the capacity of the learner. We don't use the KISS method. Oh, yeah, we want to simplify. But with kids, you know, keep it simple, stupid. That's, that, it's a crime that you have the blind leading the blind at a tennis club. You know, the young tennis teachers, they need the best teachers. Now, typically what's going to happen is, say, a country club in the U.S., club, doesn't matter, that the director has the best playing background, has a salary, and he just gives hitting lessons to the kids who can play a little bit. You know, they're the best kids at that club. And um, there's really, you know, that's what's great to hear about Dave Porter. Okay, there's orientation. And many times when people are hired, they're just like, hey, you're on court 12. Go take over court 12. No training whatsoever. No training whatsoever. With, uh, but it's, it's humility as well. And it's, it's empathy. It's, you know, care for others. In other words, no, you can, you can practice with, with anybody and everybody. And, you know, what happens in our environment, our culture, our world, is the first person who's here for the first time, they figure out their, their tennis IQ is pretty low. They don't have information. And, and I think it's just really earth-shattering when they go, you know, I'm being told this by someone who's four years younger than I am. And um, so I, I feel when I go to work, I mean, we're doing just a small project here in Boynton Beach, but I have an army of tennis teachers. You know, if I've been working with someone for five years, like say someone like Mallor Patel, you know, we're, we're, we're pounding our fist to the table, go, he's got to do this and do that to be better. But we get in trouble for saying it, but... You know, he um, his his core knowledge is way higher than you know the, the typical tennis teaching pro. One of our students was on your uh, Chad Berryhill, smart guy. He he said about the PTR and the USPTA. He goes, you have to prepare for the tests. 
because you're going to be smarter than the test. Yeah, I mean, with the USPTA, I can remember uh, Craig Tiley, you know, Dave Anderson, Mike Carter, Steve Young, Jennifer Roberts. I can just go through all the people that worked so hard to make that go. So we broke the record for the largest tests with both PTR and USPTA at one point. And both organizations were going to Japan, and, and, and really that's where they were testing lots of people one time. And we would get in the room with 15 testers. And I, you know, after the testing was done, especially with the USPTA, because Dennis Vandermeer was more systematic. He was based on group dynamics, and uh, Dennis, again, genius. But with that, um, I would tell all the guys and gals, I go, when you go in there, no one laughs, no one even snickers. Because we would go in and they'd say, well, you know, you got to have the elbow in on the forehand volley. Um, you know, you need to, um, you know, scratch your back. You need to point. You need to shuffle back. They would just, they, you know, they would throw out myth after myth that we had been trained not to do, but that was part of the test. And, um, you know, I'm not current, so I can't really say as it really improved, you know, the PTR and the USPTA with, um, I did meet with the CEO of the USPTA at one point. And, you know, we really need to have, okay, here's the Vic Braden course. And, um, you know, if people study our content, they've already really done that. But just Vic used to have um, United States Tennis Academy, USTA. At that time, the USTA was a USLTA. And, you know, there was a film loop that was a little bit difficult. I remember thinking, you know, getting the, the, um, the scissors when people split their arms on a toss. I said that was down together, up together. Get that question wrong. But I was, you know, like yourself, fanatical about studying. I got 197 out of 200. But you had to know the information. You know, you know feedback is so important. You know, what's the three-point landing? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? And it's amazing how kids don't get set and they don't understand ground reaction force, kinetic chain, how they need to lift. Um, yeah, it's just, just amazing that people don't really honor basics. Yeah. No, but it's, um, I mean, it, it is so much, so much work, you know, and that's that's the thing that, you know, I had... High, really high expectations coming here. I mean, you, you can understand, you know, crossing the ocean. You know, I mean, I, I studied this a lot and I was expecting a lot as well. But I mean, it's um, it's it's overwhelming, like the amount of time and energy, and it's just just love. You know, it's just what what you spend on each player that comes by over here. It's you know, when you say it's it's not the industry norm. I mean, it's it's out of this world. You know, and that that's really mind blowing. You know, but one thing that uh, that I, I have been thinking for a while, you know, it's like, uh, I, have you read the Simon Sinek uh, book, uh, start, start With the Why? Starting With Why? No, but I've read quite a bit yeah. that he's written. But, but, he, and he has a lot of interesting YouTube clips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but it's, it's just about, you know, sometimes you figure out because when you, when you, you know, you get through the courses and the podcast, you, you learn a lot about the, the, the what and the how. But, you know, I mean, there must be, you know, I, I, I'm always, I've always been curious about the deeper why, you know, because you put so much work in this and you have been doing it for so many years. And it's like the first time we talked on the phone and I asked you like uh, about if, if you had some connections, you know, like around uh, Scandinavia or Germany or you know, somebody I could, 
get in touch with until I could come here. And, and you know, I remember you saying, well, but watch out because coaches get, get lazy, you know. It's like uh, even, if, even if I train them, you know, it's just easier not to keep up this, this much work. So I, I'm just curious, you know, what's, uh, what's your why? And, and I, I heard some, you know, I heard you saying about, you know, getting uh, American, more Americans into college, uh, college tennis, and that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, and getting kids to hit all shots from everywhere in the court. But, uh, yeah, I just from a personal standpoint. Like with well, yeah, with, um, I think anybody who's been involved in sports a long time, they've had a bad experience with a bad coach. Yeah. I certainly have had that. And, you know, I just stop and think all over the world is kids are, you know, it's, <laughs> excuse me, it's adults as well that um, they're, they're, they're given a bad deal. You know, they're, the coach is making it up. The coach is winging it. And to the coach, we say, ah, oh, it's just another Miller lesson. You know, they'll buy, they'll make enough money to buy some Miller beer afterwards. So um, to improve tennis teaching with, you know, to be able to look in someone's eye, the, the game, tennis, uh, the guardians of the game are overall, I don't think, doing a very good job. I think it's a money grab. Uh, we need to find out ways. I thought one thing during the pandemic is uh, maybe people would spend more time on how you could teach a lot of people at one time because tennis is expensive. If the pro had the skill set to work with 24 players at the same time, well, if you really know technique, our system is a system of systems. System just means organized plan. Well, certainly I'd like to have a whistle around my neck, but I could go out with 24 people and, and not have a problem with, okay, we're going to work on forehand volleys. And everybody needs to keep doing the, the basics, repetition, reinforcement with, you know, I think the idea leaves, you know, leave the place better than you found it. Uh, with the nonprofit, my goal would be to reach out from my grave and improve tennis teaching. You know, I think it's great what came out a week or so ago with uh, the, the tennis channel. I just got all these boxes from the Vic Braden Library that are books and, the tennis channel just wanted the film. And, you know, I knocked on a lot of doors and a group of us were in negotiations to control the Vic Braden Library. But I think the tennis channel with their outreach perhaps is going to be the best, but someone has to be connected with that information. And, you know, it can't be like, say, Tracy Austin, who's such a classy, classy lady. You know, she spoke at Vic's uh, tribute. Uh, Jean Austin, her mother, she ran the pro shop. You know, the whole Austin family, they're so close to Vic and so positive. But they haven't worked the information. In other words, to go out in the trenches and have the Vic Braden information and teach hour after hour after hour, that's the only way that you're going to understand. You would learn, you know, more from Vic Braden once you studied Vic Braden and then you go out and you work on your own. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. So, um, you know, people probably get tired of us. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, Andy and I have always talked about that wealth hero worship, that we have Vic on such a pedestal. But people just don't understand. It's, you know, the, the great base, oh, it's a cult. No, people are bonded because of the information. You know, I mean, do tennis coaches know 19.1 degrees? No, they don't. And so then the Bradenism, the dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate stroke production. And... You know, with the tennis math, 
you said you listened to that podcast many, many times, is um, so much of that comes from Braden. So, no, I think um, tennis is a difficult sport. It's happening right now before our eyes where pickleball is invading tennis here in the States. Um, less people are playing. You know, it's booming in other parts of the world. Uh, but then also, too, in all fairness, some other sports, they didn't exist before, you know, where, um, you know, the exports, whatever. I mean, it wasn't that many things to choose from years ago with um, Big Braden. People buy the, the tennis clothes and wear them in the grocery store because it's difficult, very difficult for, say, entry-level adult players. But if, you know, people knew how to practice, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, you're a musician. Okay, you're going to take one lesson and be ready for a, a recital? No, you have, to, you have to practice. And tennis is the same way. And you should be able to run social practices. Hey, come on out, let's, let's practice. And you should be able to interface adults and juniors learning together. You know, that's unfortunate too. But I do think the skill set, um, but again, so many people are really good players and they're just working with someone who, you know, is pretty good for the area. And, you know, they're not really um, touching that many people. Or they're, they're just, it's not, they're not reaching the masses. They're, there's, they're um, you know, if you're, say you are that director, or you're in charge and you're just working with kids who can already play and they could play pretty well before you even met them. But you can go on automatic pilot and be out on the center court and just hit some balls with the advanced kid. And they thrive on the intention. Um, so, yeah, it's a foobar, a military term. Effed up beyond all recognition. Effed up beyond all repair. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's true. That's true. And, yeah, you can see that, like, um, it's, it's, not, it's not just in the States. I mean, it's uh, in, uh, in Denmark, like, in the, in the area where we are. Like in West Denmark, like it's uh, it is it is rough. Like with the number of players going down, and I mean, I do, I honestly don't blame it on uh, paddle, you know, paddle, however you call it in here in the states, because I mean it's different. It's a different audience, you know. <clears throat> that I think also with pickleball, you know, I haven't seen that many kids playing uh, paddle back in Denmark. You know, it's it's more of like a middle-aged sport or like. A, you know, somebody that is like after in their twenties, you know, going to hang out with their friends and the social. But but for the kids, I haven't seen it becoming a threat like from a developmental standpoint. It's just the kids don't play tennis anymore, you know, and they just they are just in other sports. So it's um, it is a shame. But it, yeah, we we really need a a revolution in that part of um, of Denmark. And there is there is the potential because there is the kids, there is the structure, there is the money. Because people actually do have do have money, they have time, and it's it's just a matter of there has been so many years without, you know, without guidance, without information, and it's been, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, as you were saying, like the national coaches, you know, is like great people, but um, I mean, I, I saw in your notes like uh, Freddie Nielsen, and he's a great guy. I mean, I, I met him once and. It's, I mean, now he's, I think he's a national coach for the, for the juniors or something like that. Is he retired? He is retired as a player. Yeah, I've got down with uh, just a few things. Um, 2012, he won uh, Wimbledon doubles. But his grandfather, Kurt Nielsen, 
Born in 1937 in the world. He reached the Wimbledon final in 53, 55. He won the US Open mixed with Athea Gibson. I think that was 57. <laughs> but yeah, his grandson with, you know, I think a lot of times players are very successful like that. He's a Wimbledon champion. They're much more approachable than someone who doesn't play at a world-class level. But yet, you need to get him in the room and get him to sit down and say, hey, this is what we need to do. You know, not anything towards Frederick, but um, most top players, it's too much work. I mean, it's really work to learn how to teach tennis. Now, to um, say, well, <laughs> excuse me, with, I'm just going to... Uh, um, immerse myself into this, and I'm, I won Wimbledon doubles in 2012, but I'm going to be able to teach eight-year-olds. And you know, I think many times, you know, they're, they're always being asked about their experiences. Just a few other things here. Tennis players from um, your country, uh, I should say, go through Italy as well, but uh, I've got some notes on Italian players. Kenneth Carlson, 41 in the world, won three ATP doubles. I believe that he's with the Federation. He was, he was the Davis Cup captain. Yeah, I don't know if he still yeah. is. And I, so I see sometimes on uh, on TV, like doing some uh, commentating. Mm-hmm. Wozniacki, she's doing commentating here. Uh, number one in the world, she won the Australian finalist in the US Open twice. Her mother from Poland was on the Polish the national Polish volleyball team. Her father, um, Polish, that's what brought them to Denmark. Is he played professional soccer in Denmark? Her brother played professional soccer. So I was like, okay, this kid's an athlete. Or I mean, they're. There she was growing up with athletes. You know, she you read about her, she hit it started hitting the backboard. You know, she had a flawed serve, but I mean, number one in the world. And you'd have to think, okay, she's growing up in Denmark and but the Eastern European mentality, you know, hungry dog hunts best. Number five on the all time money list earned over thirty five million dollars. So um I wouldn't say that her tennis instruction, not that I know, but from what I've read, like a Nadal, you know, not really from refined tennis information. Like Nadal, um, you know, he comes from soccer. We talked about Leighton Hewitt not too long ago. It comes from Australian football. Um, but then when you, you know, if, if she were to know, like when she's commentating right now, she really should study, you know, like, oh, great base tennis, or she should study information. Because when she's on TV talking about forehands and backhands, which they don't really do that much of, it's like, I mean, if I could just blow a whistle every time they say something that's not not even close. Um, of course, she's pretty blonde, and I think it has a little bit to do with it. Um, but the, it's the credibility. I mean, okay, she's number one in the world. With um, Here's the, the, the Dane I want to talk about, though. Torben Ulrich. Reached a round of six, 16 six times at Grand Slams. Played Wimbledon 21 times. Played over 100 Davis Cup matches. Played Davis Cup at 49 years of age. So, you know, you put what will happen is people say, well, in Denmark, we're not developing players. No, you have a history. You can go back to Kurt Nielsen. You know, he's in the Wimbledon finals twice. Tennis players come from everywhere. Torben Ulrich is still living. He's 93. I mean, you can tell us you're... Your thoughts with him. Philosopher, poet, painter, musician, writer, student of religion. With, um, on YouTube, it's amazing the homework you can do. 
with Carlos Goffey, who was one of our guests, talking to his son, Josh, not too long ago, coach of South Carolina. Carlos, a fun Brazilian, he was hitting balls with Torbo and Ulrich. What, what a privilege. And he just hit two or three balls, baseline to baseline. And um, don't think Torbo and Ulrich ever raised his voice, but he called him to the net and said, slow down, you're hitting the ball too hard. You have to feel the ball. And I think that's a, a very, very huge lesson with... Um, when he was in his 50s, Torben Ulrich, he ran like a teenager, fountain of youth. In 1975, I saw him play in Bill Reard's pro event, Boca West, Boca Raton, Florida. He's 47 years old. This is fun. I heard in an interview, he was asked how old he was. His answer, he paused, asked the reporter to repeat the question. He paused again. Then he replied, with the following, do you mean how old I am chronologically, how old I am physically, how old I am intellectually, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? And the reporter, I, th- I thought she handled herself quite well. And again, you know, I remember this because I had such passion for learning tennis. And so the reporter said, physically. And the 47-year-old Torben Oliver said, 17. <laughs> and, and he could run like he was 17. With a few other thoughts with Torben Ulrich, um, he always hit a backboard, but it wasn't a backboard. You get online and just put his name in. You can see him hitting against signs. You can see him hit against uh, dumpsters where they put the garbage, you know, a side of a building where the ball comes back because it's not a smooth wall. And he's going, this is great. He's hitting against his backboard and the ball's coming every which way afterwards. Um, practice to serve in the dark. Always about enjoying the moment. This is something with Torben Ulrich. When you play tennis, even when you lose, you win. You got to enjoy the moment. He was all about the beauty of the sport. And that, that's where people really, I mean, winning just really, really throws people off. Of course you want to win. But the beauty of the sport, the grace of the sport... Um, you know, he certainly was one for transcendental meditation, you know, even between games. Uh, one other thing on, on Torben, um, you can say a few things about him. His oldest child, his only child, Lars, he was a drummer for the band Metallica. There's a YouTube clip of him where he's talking about tennis. He grew up in tennis. Not only was his father world-class, so was his uncle. His grandfather was a captain of the Danish Davis Cup team. Lars wanted to be a tennis player. It's funny, he says he was top 10 in Denmark. Family moves to California for his tennis. Says he moves to Newport Beach, California, and he was not even top 10 on his street. And people in Denmark just have to realize, and he says this during the interview, it was the 70s, and tennis, it just boomed. Everybody and their brother was playing tennis in America in the 70s. The tiebreaker was invented, tennis was put on TV. So... Um, at this same time, it was 80, 81, I can remember applying and being offered the job to be the assistant coach at Corona Del Mar High School. But it, it, I couldn't do it because of my hours with Braden. There was a player on that team that was playing three on the high school team. And I went to a match and watched him play three. And then I see him playing for 
Mexico on TV. He's playing against the United States in Davis Cup. He's playing three on his high school team. Everybody played high school tennis. That's a topic we talk about quite often. So anyway, he left tennis. He, he couldn't even make the lineup at Corona Del Mar. He did go to Balteri's. I mentioned that six months. Um, but, you know, now I think you hear it the other way. Is um, It used to always be, you know, uh, Torben Ulrich's son, Lars, but now it's, you know, Lars, I guess he's pretty big in the, in the music world. What do you, what do you know? Having lived in Denmark, what do you know about, I mean, you comment on any of those players, but especially, uh, Torben Ulrich. No, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, you really feel like, uh, I don't know enough to be honest. I mean, uh, I need, I need to find out more about, uh, about Torben Ulrich. And I mean, one challenge is like, I, I saw as, as I was telling previously that, that he has, he has books and uh, most of his books are in, uh, in Danish. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an extra challenge. To, to read them, but for sure, I mean, if there is, uh, I wasn't aware, and I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's my, in a sense, my bad. It's like I haven't checked enough. Uh, well, but just just to get online, there. just to get online and see the strength of his legs and the movement. You, know, you, you um, I mean, you could keep digging, but I was watching him play Gonzalez on grass before the podcast, and like wow. But they would run back in the day. People would run all day. You know. You know, today people know more about nutrition. They know more about fitness. People are, they say, stronger, but they're not tougher. You know, everybody back in the day played three events at the Grand Slams. You know, granted that, you know, the ball was, uh, it was on three of the four um, tournaments were on grass. So the, when they start playing on hard court, I think it was great when Nadal won the Australian Open. He said, now I, I could say this. I wouldn't say it before I won, but he'd like to see less tennis played on hard courts because it's very tough on the body. And then with these rackets, I mean, the ball, the ball basically is, you know, that's where people look at the old players and go, oh, they're terrible. No, was, the ball is just slower. But the skill set, you know, then what, what they actually show is in many ways it's, you know, things they're doing were better. Yeah. All volume skills. No, but I mean, but still, I mean, with those, you know, with, with that gear, still they were able to do, like uh, I mean, I mean the serves were uh, were still powerful. You know they were still hitting the ball. You know it was it was impressive. And you know ma- managing to keep the head of the racket up, like on the volleys when you when you when you watch. And and again that's something else that that really changed my perspective over tennis. You know like hearing the names that you guys mentioned, like in in your information in your podcast, and you know. When you feel okay, I don't know this guy. Then you go on YouTube and you you watch a clip, and then you watch an interview, and then you you, you know you find out about the story. You know, and it's like okay, right now I realize I know any I know nothing about Rod Laver, for example. And then it's like, what do I do? I you know you do some some research, but then you know I'm I'm reading like the the autobiography, and it's like it opens up like a lot of doors. You know, just the fact of you know learning from the past and, see, and realizing, you know, first of all, the history of the sport and it's like what those guys had to go through, like in order to compete and, and to play. And then, you know, that really makes you understand how privileged like we are right now, like how easy it is for us. I mean, thinking about the guy that he had to, you know, just uh, was he like 18, 17, 18, like leaving home for, uh, for months like to go around the world and play tournaments and then come back. I mean, 
that's something that uh, of course still Australian players and you know and players from uh, farther country countries farther away they, they still have a harder time but it's not as uh, I mean it's not as as hard I mean the, the kid lived lived his house when he was thirteen like you know that's that's something that is is admirable you know and it's like he's you know the work ethic the commitment of of the players from the and again, the, the the poise as well. That's something that impressed me like so much. You know, even watching players like uh, like Jimmy Connors, you know, that that at the time were like the crazy ones. They were actually not that crazy compared to what we have right now. It is it, like, and most of them. I mean, watching uh, watching Sampras play, watching uh, Borg play. I mean, watching Arturash play is like it feels like. You know they they are really able to live by the principle of the you know the taking the winning and the losing in the in the same way. Like they lose a point, okay, I play the night. They win the point, okay, I win the next. You know, but even in you know somebody that is one of my idols, you know, Rafa Nadal is like okay, when he wins a point, when he wins a big game, it's like it's so much. You know, I mean all the all the fancy stuff, all the all the, all the screaming. It's I mean. It's it's cool, but it's not as as cool as as poised as it was back in the day. I mean that that's so impressive. And if you never watch it, I mean it's uh, it's eye opening, you know, because you grew up in an era in which, you know, you have you have very like slapping the racket against the the chairs empire, and you know people are almost okay with it. And it's uh, it's just, it's just different. Uh, and then that's why I want to find out more about uh, about Torbenori because he sounds one of the you know the players to to learn well especially because kids need to do so much with relaxation and enjoy the game the beauty of the sport obviously again you want to win but uh virginia wade's quote um winning tennis doesn't lead to beautiful tennis but beautiful tennis leads to winning tennis how can a kid go for years and years and not be serving volume how can they play doubles the way they're playing today so yeah it's um you know, and I think it was Stan Smith. I was this year at Wimbledon. It was fifty years. Fifty years ago, he won Wimbledon. Now, um, you know, he actually took lessons from Jim Verdick, and he's an ISTJ, according to John Neednagel. So, you know, an ISTJ is going to learn out of routine. They're not going to be spontaneous. But so over and over and over again, you know. Then he, you talk about how he worked with George Tolley. Um, when he was at USC and he didn't, you know, you couldn't play your first year. And, you know, the way that um, Smith and Lutz uh, played doubles, Bob Lutz, oh yeah, they could hit better back in returns. But the way they played doubles, um, you know, there had need, there needs to be respect for that because it was just simply outstanding. Uh, here's a few things, uh, a couple of things to ask about Italy, but um, 5.8 million people Denmark, north of Germany, approximately the size of South Carolina, approximately 7,000 miles of coastline, 400 island, islands. You could tell me your feedback on this. Considered one of the happiest countries in the world. Great welfare benefits, low corruption, well-functioning democracy. Um, hopefully it's not as divided as here in the U.S. right now. Small population. Copenhagen, uh, Largest city, 800,000 people, largest city. But overall, what's your general impression of um, the comment, happiest country in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, in a sense, it is. Like, it, it is because, 
I mean, the system, the government, like I mean, takes takes care of a lot, you know, for uh, for the population, and that that makes things easier, you know. And when you have like, uh, of course, citizens have to pay a lot of taxes, like to make the system run. It's basically the same amount of taxes that people have to say that you know to pay in Italy. The only difference is like in Denmark, actually everybody's paying taxes. You know that's that's a bit of, a, and there is a different respect for the institutions. That's that's something that is also a big difference. Even though the the background from like com- if you compare like Italy and Denmark, both countries they have in a sense a more socialistic background. You know, you know compared to the states in which it's a lot more. Uh, capitalistic but you know the services i mean people over there complain about you know the healthcare system the train system coming from italy i mean it's like it's it's actually pretty good you know which is a blessing it could also be a curse because it's like having it so easy you know it's not making people tough you know and uh, they always have a plan b in a sense you know it's like even if they are total average you know even if you're not that good at anything you can still manage to make a decent living because you know they'll find they'll find a way you know there is like um, if you you know there is unemployment benefits there is uh, you know support from the government they help you finding a job they give you money like i mean some things are when i talk to my like my friends that I have in italy about how it works if you are unemployed in denmark i mean some some friends of mine they're working full time and they're making the same amount of money that they get as unemployment unemployment benefits you know and they can get it for like months or years you know until so when you are that comfortable you know then you get people that are yeah. a little a little softer and that's uh, that's that's one thing uh, with um you're way north i one time was in sweden on june 21st the longest day of the year so the sun never went down. Yeah. I mean, it's midnight and they have special windows. Um, how about on the winter side of things in Denmark? Yeah, when does yeah. it get dark? Too that could early. be a little depressing. Too early. Yeah, and then that's that's why also, I mean, the happiest country in the world, I mean, you know, and some of the Danish people watching, I mean, now that they will. Uh, you know, but, but still, there is, there is alcohol problems, you know. It's like people in Scandinavia, they drink a lot. And it's, it's just a fact. And it's... Uh, and I, I feel, and I think, and I'm pretty sure it's also to cope with the, with the situation. You know, I mean, it is depressing. You know, so what, I would say in, um, you know, in December, December 21. Yeah, what time? I mean, what time does it get dark? Three o'clock, two, three, two, two thirty, three o'clock sometimes. And it's like, and if you have, a, let's say, sometimes the kids in school, let's say they get in school when it's still dark because probably the sun comes up maybe nine, ten, something like that. They are in school, indoor, like while for the short time in which the sun comes up. Most times, I would say, during the winter is cloudy. Some days you have a good day in which it's sunny. But then they come out of school and it's like 3.30 and it's already dark. So they might actually not get sunlight for an entire week, you know. And I mean... Well, for actually the winter, for months. So it's, uh, I mean, the body really feels it, you know, and it's like it's... uh, and you do have vitamin D supplements and you do have, but uh, that's something that I, I suffer a lot, to be honest. I mean, because also growing up in Italy and I mean, one thing I say, I, I really started appreciating good weather after I moved to Denmark, you know, like now that every time there is a good day outside and the sun is up, 
and there is no clouds, I'm like, I cannot sit indoor, you know. I, I, I need to be outside because it's like, especially in the spring after you go through the winter in which it's so dark and so gloomy and you, you might actually go two weeks in which if it's a cloudy period, you don't get to see the sun. And I mean, so it's, uh, yeah, that's something that you really get to appreciate. When you talk about um, being comfortable, I spent a lot of time at Tennis Europe tournaments and it is a pretty good guess if you look through a draw sheet at the, the players from Romania, Serbia, Croatia, um, the countries that are not as wealthy, their players are better. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, but that's just, just like, like you say, you know, hungry dogs. Yeah, hungry dog on best. Tell us a little bit about the young player from Denmark who was like the best junior in the world. and uh, Holgerun? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... To be honest, I, I watched him play on TV. I never, I never watched him live. Heard him speak a couple of times. I mean, it sounds like he has a pretty big ego. I mean, that's, I think it's fair to say, but yeah, okay, to be that good, that young, probably you also need it, like to be that self-confident. Yeah, we were just talking about that earlier. Arthur Ashe, um, yeah, you need a, a touch of arrogance. You need confidence. You, know, you don't want to be cocky, but no, you really, number one, have to believe in yourself. Yeah. No, that's for sure. But but I mean, it's I think it's borderline, you know, being cocky and yeah. being you know. I mean, when you hear him speak, I heard a couple of podcasts in which he was interviewed, and he sounds like you know, a little a little over the line. But also like how he behaved in French Open, like toward his mother and toward his, his team. I mean, it was. Have you have you seen that? Yeah, I, was, I saw that. I mean, it was. You know, it was really sad, especially because he's like, he has such a good tournament, you know, at, at such a young age. And he's like, okay, you, you're still doing good. You know, you don't need to ruin your reputation in a sense, because now also people in Denmark look at him a little differently, you know, because after you make a scene like that, I mean, it's, it's tough. But I mean, I, I really hope that, you know, that he, I hear he has, you know, he has a good game. He has a clean, clean forum, I think. I think, I think you know, He's very aggressive. He's athletic. I do think that it's tough to be that age and be growing up under the microscope. Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of pressure. But one good thing for him, I heard that he has been sticking with the. You know, he has been having a coach, like through his formative years, and you know, he never changed. Even though now he apparently trains at Muratoglu. I mean, and you know better than I do, like how it works over there. You know, but still, he's followed by, you know. Well, for our listeners, um, I'm willing to take bets that um, Patrick Mortagolo is paying Simona Halep. And he paid he paid Serena Williams with uh, no. I, that's that's just how it works. Is Patrick is the greatest marketing person in tennis? You know, he's right at the two minute waiting room at Wimbledon. He's going to be right there. He just knows when to be on TV, um, and. You know, he's done it time after time. At one point, seven junior Grand Slam champions were basically given a credit card. And they can just, you know, in that sense, he's probably doing much better than the federations. He has that type of money. His father's a billionaire. And so that's one thing that I think Patrick, you know, like say with um, the young player from, from Greece. Sissipas. Yeah, Sissipas, yeah. So, you know, he saw him on YouTube at, age 12 flew in the family and it didn't change anything. You know, you, you, you have the same coach, whatever, but we're just going to fund you. Yeah. So 
Um, it's no different than uh, voluntaries for years where there's a backroom deal. And um, that's where Nick uh, went bankrupt many times where, you know, he was giving so many people scholarships. He'd see a kid at a ball and put him on a scholarship. But Patrick is, uh, you know, definitely recruited the best players in the world and they're in his corner. And um, when I was at his place in France, it wasn't the new place he has now, but obviously he's got all the bells and whistles. And, um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they have the basics, that they, they have the fundamentals. Like if there's, if there's a hole in a person's game, do they have someone there who can actually fix that? Um, it's many times it's not even addressed. Let's talk a little bit about Italy. Um, I did tease you and say, uh, why was Italy, why is Italy shaped like a boot? You can't put all that crap in a sneaker. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Strike me dead. I shouldn't have said that. All those great Italians. Um, Adriano Panada, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched him play many, many times. He beat Borg at the French. Borg played the French eight times, won at six. He lost twice to Panada. But Panada attacked. And you can get on YouTube and watch those guys, Borg and Panada, play. And it's like Nadal, who's asked, how, do you, how would you beat Nadal? He said, that's easy. Don't miss and be super aggressive. And with Panada, uh, Panada said about um, Camille Georgie that she's a female Jimmy Connors. She moves so well. There's a famous point where Connors hits around the net post, yeah. a huge point. I think everybody in tennis has seen that. You know, Jimmy Connors' greatest points. But if you don't, juniors, that's where... I think the coaches who listen to these podcasts could just write down, okay, here's, you know, here's uh, an assignment. I listen to this podcast. Listen to Torben Ulrich. Go, go look up Torben Ulrich and watch him hit the backboard. With, but her serve, and it's just amazing. It just remains the same year after year. Um, speaking of serves, uh, this is an Italian player, Sarah Arani. Oh, my goodness. But in all credit, I mean, I think of, you know, we teach these kids to have all beautiful service motions. And in a lot of ways, that doesn't mean they can beat Mickey Mouse. But she, look at her serve, and it just shows you what type of character she had. To have such a major flaw and to how how well she did. She got to the French Open final, played, uh, you know, Serena Williams. I know our listeners now know Andres Barbosa is our fact checker, but you let me know if that's right. I'm, 99% that's right. So she played against Serena, but Serena was just home run derby. I mean, the, the gal is just so palm up. Fabio Fognini. Fognini. How do you say it? Fognini. Yeah, I know Raven Klassen talks about playing playing him in doubles, and uh, he goes, he's so relaxed. He's um, he's eating a granola bar during the points. I mean, he's taking the granola bar out of his pocket. He's chewing on it. Uh, but that guy, he hits the ball well. I mean, I just think that he's inconsistent with his with his fire. Yeah. Yannick Center, you know, I think everyone should plug in his name as a national championship in snow skier. It's amazing. So humble. But as great as he is, um, you know, his backhand volley, you know, where, um, you know, it's difficult for him to go forward. But he, he said that he likes t- tennis competitions better than skiing because it lasts longer. Yeah. More of a challenge to figure it out. 
Here's something for uh, all-court tennis, now called the Billie Jean King Cup, 2006, 2009, 2010, 2013. You know, the Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup now. Italy wins it. Corrado Barazzuti? How do you say that? Barazzuti, yeah. Barazzuti. But uh, f- f- help me with the pronunciations. Flavia Panetta, mm-hmm. 2015 US Open. Yeah. Um, Scavoni, Francesca. How do you say that? Francesca Schiavone. Um, she wins the French, was 2010. And then Roberto Vic- Vincini? Roberta Vinci. Vinci. Say that again. Roberta Vinci. Roberto Vinci. Five Grand Slam doubles, didn't reach the top 10 until she was 33. One hand and backhand, all court game. Serena's on her way to win, trying to win the Grand Slam <laughs> at the US Open. And that was a clinic. And, you know, people get upset with me, but it was like, okay, you're, you're both a tennis player and an athlete. But I would say if if Serena had, say her name again, Roberto? Roberta. Roberta. Vinci. Roberta. Yeah, my, I should not say that. Roberta. Vinci. That if Serena had some skills that she had, Serena would have been even better. Scary. Um. But those three, because they could play all-court tennis, um, but do people really see that? And I think that's where, you know, there's only so much time in a day, but say, hey, here's the story. And, um, you know, Jim Lehrer, the power of storytelling. Um, the coach uh, won the Fed Cup teams, Berezuti, yeah, top 10 player. He won the Davis Cup with Panada. They lost in the finals six times. So when people say, oh, Italian tennis is doing so great now, um, you know, I go back to watching Rafael Reggie at the Orange Bowl. What a fighter. I mean, she had flaws in her game, like ev- like everyone. But what a tennis player. And, you know, you, you, so it's not like, well, Italy's doing well now. I mean, they've always, they've always had successful players. Um, what would you say about Italian tennis? You hear that just like you're in Canadian tennis, like, you know, they're doing all these things from a developmental standpoint. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, it's it's hard to criticize because I've been out of it for a long time. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But there is a lot of stories in which, you know, the players, like the really top players coming out right now, you know, it could be Berrettini, it could be Sinner. I mean, they do have a story that involves a coach that has followed them since with, since when they were very little and they haven't been having much to do with the federation. Actually, there is, you know, clear stories of Riccardo Piatti talking about, you know, the federation wanting to, you know, to get Yannick under, the, under their wing and Riccardo Piatti saying, no, 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 like this guy's not going anywhere. He stays right here with me and I'm going to take care of him and develop him. So that's something that happened. Then you have other players like, you know, for example, Musetti, that is uh, doing quite well right now, except today I think he lost. But, um, I mean, he has been working in the federal center for quite some time. Again, he has been having the same coach, which I, I'm not sure, I'm not aware if he's being, um, you know, if his coach is external or if he's part of the federation, but there is the federation center in uh, Tirrenia, and that's uh, that's where there is, like, the, the top 
top Italian players, theoretically, training. Some other younger kids are coming out of there. So I'm not sure. But again, the biggest names that we have right now, they are coming out from uh, like individual stories. I mean, and then you have guys like uh, Fognini. I mean, moved to Spain together with Pernetta and Schiavone. Again, when they were very young, very little, they were training in the same place where uh, I think it was uh, Sanchez Casal, where, uh, you know, Marat Safin was, uh, was training. And uh, that's that's why, I mean, I actually think, I'm not sure if they even speak Italian at home. Like, I mean, they speak Spanish so well, both him and, and Pernetta and Schiavone too. So, yeah, I mean, I think their game, like, has been really formed out outside outside Italy. So that's, I think one thing with that is you go to a com- more competitive environment. Yeah. But it's interesting. I, I do think, like, here in, in the U.S., college tennis... Once a kid goes to college, there's almost no connection between the college coach and the junior coach. This dialogue, okay, what holes they have in the game? What are you working on? And in all fairness to the college coach, you know, maybe that line of communication, there's, there's not enough input there. But, you know, the players that are taken away from their coach and work with the federation, you know, people have always been up in arms in the U.S. about that. Um, how's it go? Um, um, one bad coach is better than 10 different coaches. You know, you'd be working on the same thing over and over again. Now, what about Piatti? Um, you know, he's someone that I don't know very much about. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, I think he's, he seems, I, I watched some, some interviews and some, uh, some videos with, uh, with him. I, and, yeah, I wasn't fortunate enough to, to meet him in person yet, but um, I, I hope, I hope to meet him. It looks like, um, like a quieter guy in a sense like he's not he's not a Moratoglu like he's not a marketing guy like he's uh, I think he's more uh, he's a little more introverted probably you know I, w- I wonder like personality types you know I think he, he likes more to be in the background working with the player and that's why often like you don't see him so much also I mean now Yannick Sinner is not working with him anymore but also with the other players like with uh, you know Milos Raonic and Borna Cioric when he was working with them sometimes he was in the box but most times like he is working with them when he's back home and then he stays at home when they go out and play tournaments so I think I think he's a worker I think he's somebody that really enjoys the process of you know making the player changing stuff then I don't know if um, you know what he actually works on because I, I never, uh, I never had the pleasure to meet him. But, uh, but I mean, I think that you know there is some some good results out of what he's been but doing. You, with, uh, you before the pandemic, you were scheduled to go to a workshop. Yeah, so. yeah, I was, uh, I was actually going to go, and it's you know and that was what I was looking for because I, I, I signed up actually for this workshop on uh, biomechanics. You know, and that's that's something that you know. Even if you look online, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a jungle, you know, when you try to study biomechanics, because it's like, like, like you guys say on the podcast, you know, then you start digging in like the biomaxi mechanics and, and then you, you're lost because they're talking about everything and anything. And it's like, I just need to know how to hit the foreign, you know, and then that's why I'm, I'm so blessed with you guys, like just making it simple, you know, because otherwise it's. Yeah, that comes from Jack Roppel, biomaxi mechanics, biomaxi mechanics. Bio mini and bio no, no mechanics. And we know, I think a lot of times people become fact throwers and they're trying to impress their students. But we, we have some people that are not biomechanists, but they're carrying on like they are. You know, that's not 
actually the field they studied in. And then also too, is then, you know, the theoretical and the practical, I mean, the lecture in the lab, that's one thing that was great about Braden. He was a self-made biomechanist, but he had really taught tennis. You know, something Jack Grapple, who was spoon-fed by Vic, same time I was, uh, great for the game, great presenter, but he did not have the hours of, you know, he was a professor at Illinois forever. He didn't have the hours of being out there teaching little kids and, as I said, grinding it out in the trenches with beginners. Would you but put I, uh, Mark Kovacs in the, same, in the same category, in a sense? I think Mark Kovacs' expertise is on recovery. Okay. And but he's Dr. Serve yeah. here in America. I one time was at the PTR and it rained. I was presenting, he was presenting, and um, Matt Clore did so much of the work with um, Patrick Gibson. So all of a sudden there's, it rains. So everybody goes to this huge auditorium and, and Mark Kovacs is going through the play-by-play on Patrick Gibson's serve. And, uh, but I, I mean, I did videos for Patrick when he's a beginner and he's somebody who could show the great base left-handed, right-handed. So uh, there's the show business of tennis. I mean, you know, I, I think with um, the football coach here in America, Bill Belichick, just do your job. But I think that what ha- happens is most people are selling. They're not teaching. You know, they're, they're trying, you know, that's where at one time the great base, uh, our tennis intelligence body, there was a fee to it. But we just stopped and said, okay, we're going to give everything for free because, you know, it's just, it's just really kind of turns my stomach on how people are just charging and everybody's got new secrets. And, but I do think Piotti, um, I know Lubicek spent a lot of time with him and best man at his wedding and whatever. You read all these great things, but I think that high grades for being a relationship coach with, um, but also too, is that, you know, you just have to, people need to understand that there's a, a, different place in a different time. If some kid is 12 years old and, you know, you film them and they get a palm up overhead and they, they, you know, they're not going to play an approach shot the rest of the year, let alone a volley or an overhead is there's just too much turning to what the pros are doing. You know, say for example, um, I was saying earlier today to a dad that, I was around ice hockey, born into it. And I went off to hockey school and I worked with figure skaters. My older brothers didn't have that opportunity. But because I had older brothers and my father was an engineer, he also coached. I just knew, okay, it couldn't cross over going backwards one way. The best people to help me with my game initially were figure skaters because if in hockey, if you can't skate, you can't play. Now, all these years later, I mean, they need to make the rinks bigger because everybody can fly. Everybody can skate. That wasn't the case years ago. But tennis, uh, not everybody can volley. Not everybody can serve volley. You know, not everybody can do do it, adapt and play on different surfaces. But um, people just don't think they'd have to really study the information to realize you can criticize the pros. You know, it's not like, well, okay, you know, John Isner is one of the nicest guys in tennis. I understand tonight he's playing Ben Shelton. And uh, you would never convince me that for playing doubles, he should have been taught to serve volley as a little kid. Now, I mean, I've talked to people who've coached him in juniors. I, I know Manny Diaz who coached him in college. Um, he one time was in a room where he had just lost in three sets to the Brian Brothers, Sam Query. 
And he was emphatic about saying, if we serve and volley, we wouldn't have gone three sets. Well, of course, but if you'd started serving volley in when you're 10. So it's not a matter of taking shots at the pros, but just like, well, to speculate, um, the players of the future, the players of the future. You know, in this country, the most talked about program is the USDA player development program. So much money spent on it. Started in 1987. What's been produced? What has been produced? And what needs to happen is to get coaches on the same page, get coaches working together where, you know, a kid goes on vacation and he takes, takes a tennis lesson in our tennis club. And yeah, you need to have an efficient swing that's high, low, high, inside out, long hitting zone. And um, yeah, I think it's consumer education and then product knowledge. So the consumer doesn't have, um, you know, consumer education. And in the pro, anything goes. There is, is there really product knowledge? So in other words, this is a clean service motion. And you go to, the, you go to some club and go, you look around and go, everybody here can serve. And you don't see all these different serves and then just one kid comes out of the group because, you know, they've got that animalistic, hit the ball all day. They've got the intangibles. Uh, but even then, that kid doesn't know that perhaps the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming right at him. Um, no, it's been great to have you on as a guest. Do you have any other questions? Uh, great base? Yeah, I mean, j- just a few, you know, it's like um, one uh, one quote, and it's like, I mean, it can sound a little negative, but, you know, it's, it's also, um, I'll say it anyway. You know, you always talk about, you know, the pain of discipline and the pain of regret, you know. And it's like, uh, I, I've heard you saying that you've, you've been saying the wrong things, like, sorry, the, the, the right things to the wrong people. And that sounds, uh, you know, it sounds a bit like if there is some... Um, you know, some kind of, you know, I was just wondering about if you feel that you have made throughout your long career, like, you know, spacing through all your um, experiences, you know, uh, you know, mistakes that looking back is like, okay, I wish I, I did that differently. You know, this would have, you know, I could have done better. I could have ended up in a different place, you know, something that could help like, uh, you know, younger coaches, but also parents, but also players, you know. From, uh, no, um, you know, I just tease, you know, say I've said all the right things to the wrong people. That's for people don't practice. Like today I, I said that and I said it to a young boy. Um, he's leaving here and we do a post film and he's obviously it's on film. He's hitting the ball better. No one would really argue with it if they saw the pre and the post. And I said, well, the operation was a success, but the patient may die. If he doesn't go home and follow up, follow up. But I think with a tennis lesson, it's like a match. No, for sure. I think we're on my side of it. Um, you know, we can be guilty of over teaching also to, um, most people are guilty of under teaching. I rather over teach than under teach, but they're both wrong with, but it's a lesson's like a match. You have to stop and think how to, how to go. You know, you have to think, okay, how could that lesson have gone better? It wasn't just another lesson and you have to be your own best critic with, um, no, I think also too, um, you just think of what, what the situation entails. You know, many times I'm coaching to the lower end of the program because, you know, my brain type, I've been empathetic, empathetic educator and I'm going to, 
I'm going to gravitate towards working with a beginner. So, you know, it's eventually you have to get to the point where you can just, okay, the kid is 16. You know, he's got these holes in his game and it's like, okay, we're going to keep telling you these, but we're going to cut you loose and you just need to play. I mean, there is no perfection. So um, that's, that's where you can, you know, say, well, okay, how do I do with this one person? Could I have uh, accelerated the process with, you know, pushing the right buttons, you know, to how to win the kid over, how to, how to make the kid hungry, how to motivate the kid. Um, yeah. So I just think a reflective thought and like, okay, the lesson, how did that go? And you can always get better. You know, I, I think it's really unfortunate that the people that, you know, they, they're telling you that they're a great tennis teacher. I mean, come on, you don't have to tell anybody you're a great tennis teacher. There's different levels of competency, but here in the U S um, largest you know, economy in the world, it's just amazing how many people are selling, selling, selling. Like I'm the best. I'm the best. It's like, Oh, come on. No, well, first of all, no one's the best, but um, no, for sure. You know, how could that lesson have gone differently? More balls hit. Um, you know, granted, you could even say, okay, the fun factor, uh, but also too is that you know when they left, was there, a, you know, was there a good beginning, good end? Was there a review? What were the take takeaways? So always um, think of it as a match. People will do that in a match. You go to a USPTA PTR conferences in this country, and people are really into the tournament. They're really into the tournament. But um, I do think, and Braden used to say that if you're really going to be a great tennis teacher you do come to the crossroads where you don't play anymore because you're more wrapped up in your student's game than your game. But at the same time, you know, I say that where people should be able to continue to play. You know, like for myself, you know, on the brain type being an ESTJ, um, I was just wound up where I know I got to, I got to train four hours a day, you know, where the P can go, yeah, I'll play. And they just, and, you know, also do Jim Larry used to say this is that, you should never stop playing tennis. Just play a set a day. Play a set a day against anybody and everybody. Because if you don't, you lose it. You know, if you don't use skills, you lose skills. No, totally. But, but also connecting, like, to the, you know, the, in a sense, like, the different hats, you know, as you have been an educator of kids, an educator of coaches, like, and, you know, working with the, with the college team back in the day, you know, it's like different, different roles, like, different, uh, talking about, like, joy, like, personal joy. And also the impact that you feel that you can that you can make, you know. Sometimes I, I was having a conversation with uh, what's his name. It's actually a pretty well-known uh, fitness trainer. His name is uh, Ryan Ryan Rubens. No, uh, um, anyway. But it, what he was talking about is that he felt now that he's working with the, more with the federation side. It was like okay, before I was working with the individual player, and I could impact that player. Then I was coaching the coach that would coach 10 players. And then I could zoom in and coach, you know, have a larger impact. So also talking about, you know, like the individual joy and the impact that you feel that you're making, like what gave you the, the most of these two. And if you think that there is a trade-off between like the personal joy that you can get in working in different roles and the impact that, uh, that you make. Well, I do think that's one of the reasons that people teach is it's psychic income. You know, I think if you're teaching, you're not doing it for the money. And it is a life vehicle and, you know, you help people with their, their life, you help people with their confidence. And, um, you know, that's, people really need to get that message. I think that's where parents, you know, the reason you have your child play tennis is they're, 
it's an extracurricular activity that's going to allow them to learn so much about themselves. And, you know, the winning and such is, is just a bonus. So, um, no, I, um, no, it's not a matter of, well, I, gee, I want to work with uh, the players that are playing at the highest level. And, you know, to me, it's all the same. It's all the same. If it wasn't, you know, I would have positioned myself where I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You know, I would have positioned myself to, because I, I mean, I can't do that. You know, the jockocracy, you know, how you talk to a player. I mean, I've trained with many tennis teachers that they're just not capable of that. How do you, how do you talk to an athlete? I think my, my banter, my time in hockey helped me out with that. But um, no, I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether it's um, the local yokel tournament or, you know, a big college, big, you know, junior, even pro event. It's um, all, all the way to Wimbledon. You know, it's, it's um, you know, and, and we've had many people get to the point where, you know, they're playing at the Grand Slams. And then, you know, you have to ask yourself, um, the, um, you know, we are going to interview Austin Krychek in a couple of weeks and he's just in the French Open final. You know, maybe it's just pure ego on my part, but well, if he didn't change his game, didn't totally overhaul his game when he was seven, eight years old, and we have it all on film, is, you know, I mean, he can serve and volley. And how many serve and volleyers are there in America right now? How many people can play world-class doubles? And um, so that psychic income is that, yeah, I think I helped that kid out. Or I, uh, you know, and I, you know, it comes down to uh, like colleges. I tell parents, um, and I've worked with so many people because I'm also a supplemental coach. Students send me students. So it's, and I've been doing it for 48 years. So I usually I'm 10 for 10. I said, name 10 colleges. And of course, you know, they're going to name the very elite schools and what have you and for the power five conferences. And yeah, I'm usually 10 for 10 where I can tell you, oh, okay, I taught so-and-so who played there. I taught so-and-so who coached there. Um, so, but really in the end, um, you know, we have a treasure chest of information and, you know, I've just done some homework over the years and, and that's what it is. It's uh, not a matter of, uh, of what we've, we haven't discovered anything. You know, there's no secret sauce with us. This is it. And you said it earlier. Um, I mean, it should be mandatory. It should be, you know, in reprint. People need to read Brayton's book. You know, they haven't, you know, and, um, you know, certainly the USTA in this country could have taken the book and, um, and you know, said, okay, let's present it in a little different way. But, you know, it just, it's not going to change. You know, the, the laws of physics are not going to change. And the argument on, you know, you know, to change your grip or not change your grip on the volley, that's where it comes back to tennis math. It takes the same amount of time to change your grip or not change your grip. And if you look at the very best players, they don't say what they do or do what they say. So that's, that's just goes on and on where, um, you know, say what, what happened? And the rhyme and reason is just like, it's just, there's too much craziness. Yeah, but I mean, but listening to this is like, you know, it, it kind of answers also the other question about, you know, if you, if you have in recent years, like change your mind about something that could be technical, tactical, but I doubt it. 
also about about physical training, mental performance, character building. You know, and it, you know, I heard it. I think it was uh, it was uh, about uh, Welby, Welby Van Arn, like that. Uh, looking at Roger, like playing, he changes mind. Not that he changes mind. He realized that okay, we were not teaching it the most efficient way. You know, it's like if there is anything, any aha moment that you had in recent years. About yeah, it. just to recap that Welby. I mean, I spent time with them in the nursing home. Actually, we, we are going to get around to interviewing Ed Weiss. It's been approved by Ed Weiss, who wrote the book on Welby and and uh, Stuart Welby's son, to uh, you know have his book for free on our website. But Welby used to tell kids, you know, this is the beginner grip on the forehand. This is a championship grip, and because it was wooden rackets, it was on grass and. You know, people were aspiring to play Wimbledon, and that was back when people were wearing spikes. And, um, you know, of course, Roger didn't have a composite grip um, on the forehand side. And, um, no, no, I think that with, um, you know, yeah, you should always stop and think and say, well, how can we get kids to play approach volleys? How can we get kids to... um, do X, Y, and Z, I think more creative teaching. Okay, we should have done this. The governing body of tennis in this country, around the world, we're going to play one bounce doubles. We tell people, if everybody played one bounce doubles. So, no, I don't think by any means there's all the answers, but at the same time, um, it's not going to drastically change. With, I mean, look at, you know, you just, uh, Hank Jungle, who um, had a big influence on Tim Gullicks in first, Tom Gullicks in second, the supermarket of tennis. I mean, okay, backhand volley, Edberg. Okay, we're going with Edberg. The one-handed backhand, Warinka. And then you think Federer is so great on both those shots, but he would tell you I couldn't volley like Edberg on that side. And also that uh, if I had a wish, I you know that was something he said, I wish I had Warinka's backhand. So... Um, but if you look at it, it's, it's all fundamentally sound. It's all, you know, and it sounds like we're promoting like Patrick Manigulu is that, that it's all great base. Now we, we, we're going to change the name of it every other year now to solid fundamentals, but, um, Yannick Noah, Richard Krychek on the surf, um, with, um, just out of a book, those guys, how they, how they hit a serve. I mean, it's just, it's just, biomechanically sound. It's, you would think that, now Stan Frankert, he studied Braden. He had a lot to do with Richard Krychek. But, um, so how, I, how much of a connection was there, I don't know. But I do remember spending time with Stan Frankert, you know, where I, I'm at the Vic Braden Tennis College and I'm assigned to, assigned to Stan. And, you know, he was in charge of the Dutch Tennis Federation at one time. But like those two guys on the serve, doesn't mean that they had lessons from Braden, but um, yeah, you know, you know, one thing with a great base, there's not going to be an unorthodox player. There's not going to be a Monica Selish, you know. So, um, you know, that I think that's a, the question mark you have to make when you meet someone, and also really knowing the kid. Uh, we've had a couple kids come this summer that um, you know they've already been recognized by the USTA, and then they've been, you know maybe one or two of them been dropped by the USTA, but, um, okay, we're just going to help them a little bit. You know, I think I could be critical and say, yeah, we tried to help people too much because they're, 
their game is too far gone and you, you have to work within their game. Um, it's, it's, it's hard for me to do that, Say, oh, but I can do that. You know, where I've done that for years in tennis teaching conferences is someone comes out and say, okay, tell us your, what you want to work on. And I, I, I did, I learned that from Braden is I can be in front of a group of people and some kid can come out and I can get him to hit the ball better in five minutes because it's diagnostic. I understand the flaw, the cause, the cure, but that doesn't mean that, okay, it's a magic wand and they're, they're hitting the ball better. You just say, okay, this is what, this is what you got to do. But then, you know, um, I think it's a matter of uh, the chemistry, the relationship. It's not, so it's not just, okay, here are the X's and O's, the nuts and bolts, but how can we get this kid connected where they are going to, you know, you know, the process, they're going to follow the pathway. I mean, I just have like uh, two short questions. Yeah, go ahead. From the kids, but you can tell me if you... No, no, we're good. We're good. No, but... uh, These are marathons, you know, these are, these are, these podcasts are for people on international flight. (laughs) No, uh, Hilvi was asking if, uh, why is uh, tenacity your favorite word? Well, my mother used to tell me I was tenacious. You know, the absolute certainty that what you want to transpire is going to transpire. Actually, I'm pretty foolish thinking, okay, I'm going to be able to help tennis teaching. It's like we're a drop in the ocean. But no, tenacious. Uh, there's 15 schools in the United States. There were uh, 16, I believe, that are the Bulldogs. They got that tenacious look. And one of the California schools, they dropped in the Bulldogs, had a vote, and now they're the banana slugs. But no, you've got to be tenacious. You just never, never, never give up. And I think that's something that's, uh, it's just based on society that kids give up before they start. You know, they're, kids aren't working part-time jobs and kids don't do to have to do household chores. And, you know, the parenting has gone down levels. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, uh, and Anton actually was asking, uh, you know, as you can see, we need to work on his uh, mental toughness a bit. But he was asking what's your favorite drill or exercise like so that he can uh, work on, like becoming me- more mentally tough. I think he should film himself playing. should film himself in everything he does. And, and then he needs to be a student of body language. He's got to change his body language. Yeah. You know, Jim Lair, you know, what can you physically change? Well, one, you can smile. One, you can say good morning. And, you know, he, you know, it takes uh, 14 muscles to smile and 72 to frown, you know, take the air in through your lungs. I mean, be happier on this side of the ground than the other side of the ground. So he, he, he just needs to know. Um, how bad his body language is. He's low negative. And, you know, that's where name calling, I like to stay away from that, but say, well, I'm not going to let the nickname stick, but are you a faucet or are you a drain? And a faucet, energy makes energy. Like this guy's positive. You know, we're all going to be negative. Like, come on, let it out, release it. But a drain is like, we don't need the low negative. No time. And that's where tennis kids are not playing a, a team sport. You know, he was asked by Fergus, the Irish coach who's visiting here, um, have you ever played a team sport? And, you know, that's where kids, tennis kids are not really learning to play for something bigger than themselves. And, um, you know, and also too, you think of the club, I'm going to guess that he's one of the better players at the club. So his environment, you know, um, I would try to create, okay, we have this, you know, girl is younger than you coming and she's going to wax you. She's going to beat you. And 
Um, not to make anybody feel bad, but like you, you have to know where point A is to get point B. You know, Jim Lair, tennis players never arrive. They're always in transit to a better place. But right now, the way he's conducting himself, he's not in transit to a better place. He's going to get stuck in the mud. Um, but that's just one issue where he gets low negative. But then you think of the people who, um, the scoreboard just regulates their day. You know, if if they won, everything's fine and everything's, everybody around them is going to be okay. And then if they lose, everybody around them has to be miserable. You know, parents are amazing like that. It was that they, uh, like, well, my kid lost, and they let their kid act like a total prima donna. It's, it's, it's really bad. But I would say be a student of body language. For sure. For sure. And, and, the, and the, the, you know, last, last one from, from me uh, about, uh, you know, the, the community, the great base community. Also, when you're talking about, like, creating the environment, you know, like, Denmark is, is small, but we are not far from Germany. We are not far from, you know, Finland and Norway and uh, Sweden and uh, even France, you know, it's like it's, it's fairly close. So it's, it's about how can we connect and understand when you say that not all coaches like follow like the information like, uh, you know, le by the letter. But I'm, I'm sure that there is like thousands of coaches that have been either trained or that have been influenced by, you know, by the great base, like information, Vic Braden, Welby Van Arn, like, you know. Dennis Vandermeer, all these guys, I'm sure they had an impact. So it, it was like, uh, I would just love like to see, you know, in an ideal world, opening Google Maps and typing like uh, Great Base, you know, and having on the map like coming out all the red dots, you know, across yeah. across Europe, across the United States. Okay, these are the clubs, these are the coaches that I can, you know, send an email to and say, can I bring my kids to you and, you know, have, have them hit some balls with your kids and... You know, in Germany, the level of play is so much higher than in Denmark just because they have more players, you know, and it's like, can, you know, create a club friendship, you know, can we make a connection that, um, you know, that it's not that far away. So it's like just how can we help, you know, forming that community, you know, making a forum, Facebook groups, like a list on the website of coaches that you guys recommend, certify, no, I don't know, but it's just... Uh, if, well, if yeah, a few things. I mean, that's... Um, great input. That's what needs to be done. We do have ghost followers, meaning um, people are not giving credit to us for where they learn the information. They're just being pretentious. And, you know, we, um, we understand that the, the self-promotion, people have to take care of their own ballywick. They have to make sure they have lessons and such. But I think also too, that, um, You know, there has to be validation. Just because someone says, okay, I've studied great base, that doesn't mean they really study great base. Actually, the people who have done the best with player development are the people who come to see us on a regular basis. You know, they just, it's not like, well, I went to a, I mean, I've trained a lot of people who have just gone to a weekend workshop. And, but they're, they circulate, they're around it. And because it's, that's just the way it works. You know, I have to work your craft. The, But then politically, you know, at one time in Berlin, I, for three summers in a row, um, I was training coaches. And then the people who controlled the indoor courts were told the fourth summer, if he comes again to train coaches, we're not renting any courts from you. And the Federation rented quite a few indoor courts from them. So um, 
it's really, really interesting where, you know, what would the Danish Tennis Federation say? Here in the U.S., I mean, you know, the spirit of the entrepreneur, I mean, if you want to do it, you just do it. Uh, but I do think in some places that you would find the governing bodies to be restrictive. No, you can't do that. You know, I have to have to go through the, the chain of command. I do think that it should be done. Um, you know, you're a young guy, you, your energy level, you certainly could help us with this. I think that, you know, I think of like say Mark Hamlin in Germany um, with, uh, I mean, Andy Fitzell's there now. I, mean, I can name probably 10 people that I've trained that are still in Germany. You know, some of them got away from developmental tennis. You know, their their job is they run a club and it's just most of your kids come once a week and it's hit and giggle and you know, they're appreciative of what they learned from us. And years ago we, we we didn't just we weren't just in the lane of forehands and backhands. We're teaching people how to, you know, be a programmer, be an event manager, you know, all the different hats that you have to wear. But I do think getting people connected online. <coughs> but what you're saying, it, it Lorenzo, it needs to be done. It needs to be done. So that's where right now, um, you know, it's yeah, we're treading water a little bit, um, waiting for this uh, status to be approved. Now, that doesn't mean that, like say someone living in Denmark, that if the Great Base becomes a nonprofit, it really, um, that's just Americans that can donate to mon- monies to that to make that work. And we're just going to, you know, I, I'm going to continue just to do what I do and not make my money uh, from the nonprofit. I think that's another thing. Most nonprofits I think are crooked, but we're going to um, just continue to try to give out free information and have the monies that we raise. You know, it'd be great to hire, like say one, two people that are just experts in the social media side of things. And, you know, your input uh, would be great. I think that you know, certainly when I get my angel wings, it needs to keep on going. Um, you know, that's how strong it is. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's, it's, um, you know, like eight years later after Braden passed away for the tennis channel to put out that piece is, uh, you know, hope, hopefully they can like, wow, this was all, um, you know, people listen to our podcast on Gideon Ariel in the seventies. It was like, come on, you know, I just what he had to say is just mind-boggling. It was so good. But um, no, th- there needs to be collective efforts. And right now, um, we wouldn't want to have it be where um, someone is just going to you know, put a patch on their sleeve and say, well, I'm great base. And they really have to, there needs to be a way where they're proving that they've logged hours. Um, very few people, I get myself in trouble, but very few people have actually completed tennis intelligence supply. You know, it doesn't have much of a plot. My mother would say it's pretty boring. You know, it's not that interesting a story. The, um, and it's the same thing with uh, a reading list. I, I can't get myself in trouble with most tennis teachers. They, they, I got asked the other day by a dedicated parent, as a dedicated son, what books to, to read. You know, I think anything by Braden, anything by Lair. And there's all, there's all sorts of books to read. But when it just comes down to the nuts and bolts, it comes down to nuts and bolts is, um, okay, we're going to get a ready position. We are going to have a unit turn. You know, the, the racket's going to go below the ball and the racket's going to go away from the target. The ball's going to rotate with true topspin. 
how are we going to do that? And, um, no, so yeah, no, you're right on where that, that needs to be done. You know, Peter Brewer actually just passed away for years. He had an, uh, an atlas. You go to his website, it was a, uh, a map of the world and you see the, as you said, the red dots on where he had people you know, teaching. But he, he was really in the, the service business. He wasn't so much in the education business. I don't want to belittle that, but, um, and sometimes tennis teaching, you know, if someone doesn't want a lesson, it's a disservice, but, um, with, you know, could we just agree, I've said this a thousand times, can we just agree that the tennis court's a rectangle? Can we agree that water runs downhill, not uphill? Can we get on the same page? So if two adults, you know, they disagree, well, that's fine. But what about C? So two pros working at the same club. And, um, you know, what about, you know, the, the third party? What about the... the say, the child you're working with. So, no, you're right on. We could talk more about that. That's what we hope to do. Um, the uh, no, But if, if I can help, I mean, if I can help and, the, you know, we can connect and create, like, this kind of community. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, uh, no, it's a must. Um, I do think that the great base, it comes from Richard Hernandez, who was a guest, and he said tennis needs a great base initiative. And I should say that again. Tennis needs a great base initiative. And then what we were doing at this two-year college in the 80s, working with our eight pillars, you know, and there's all sorts of success stories with, with the great base. And um, no, there's, there's a history lesson to it. And, um, you know, granted, you, we can add to it, like you were asking, you know, yeah, we can make improvements to it, but um, the core is there. People, and people need core knowledge. Again, all you have to do is watch people hit a ball. And it's like you've spent a lot of time with Berto. You just watch as a kid play and you'll say, no information. He has no information. You see how they're playing. And, you know, and also that kid can play pretty well in the early, in the early stages because they're in a primal stage. They're just free. They're not thinking about anything and they're just fighting. You know, you're, you know, trying to teach a kid to be able to play a, a one-handed, underspin, backhand approach on cross-court based on the short ball range and all the different positives of hitting an underspin backhand. Um, you know, that you just, you know, you just see kids are, they're not even playing shots like that. And, but they're free. They're just, they're just ripping balls, but no, you're right on. And uh, that's where it'd be great to connect further. And you need to have somebody with your passion help us out. You have, obviously you'd have more skills in that area than I would. I'm a dinosaur when it comes to, uh, yeah, I can return emails. But no, it's great. Yeah. Great to have you on thank as a guest. You, thank you so much and thank you for uh, for this week. I mean, and it's been uh, it's been incredible, really. I mean, it's um, you know, it's you have you, you expect something and then then you get you get just so much more. I mean, it's uh, Oh, thanks. I do I do think that's um, important that people should try to exceed expectations. And you know, it's not, coming back to what you asked, you know, it's never just another tennis lesson. Yeah. I mean, this is this kid's one hour or it's a group coming out for practice. And when the practice ends, did they hit every shot? You know, did they get better? Did they get better? It's not a matter of just counting how many people are out there and how much money you're making. And it's, uh, you know, to be, a, to be a teacher is a privilege. And I think we have to honor that. Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you. Lorenzo, thank you. Lorenzo.
Say that last name one more time. Panariti. Panariti. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> My name's pretty boring, Steve Smith. But anyway, thank you very much. Thank we you have to uh, keep going forward, but I really appreciate you being here, bringing your students. It's been great. Thanks. Thank Adios, amigos. Podcast number 103 in the books. Thank you.